said waters it's jacob and cole thank you for tuning in to media says uh media, media says what said, <laughs> said what? what sorry it's been a while listeners it's been a while um yeah we took a brief hiatus we, we appreciate you guys sticking with us uh over the course of that hiatus and, and hopefully it only increased your anticipation for this next episode um so yeah thank you for tuning back in all of you from virginia and Vermont and all the places that we've been uh, amassing listeners from. Uh, you know, uh, it's good to be back. How you been? I've been doing really. Um, actually, I guess I could open up to the to the listeners here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been um, it's been a little tough lately. You know, life uh, gets tough sometimes. Uh, sometimes for reasons. Sometimes for not reasons. Yeah. Like weirdly enough, um, reading the novel that we're going to be discussing today. Um, I don't know if that helped me through it, but it definitely, um, I don't know, it felt aligned to what was going on in my head. How have you been? Good guy. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, we've had some, like, we've been really trying to get a studio space for a while and the, he said what people are being kind of like, some, I, I, there's more going on for you. I know that we won't get it like, you know, but just, I know that's one thing that maybe listeners would be interested in. That's been causing some turmoil in both of our lives. We apologize for the mediocre sound quality that's persisted, but clearly people are still tuning in, which is great. Um, yeah, I've been all right. I, I think sometimes like it is impressive. I read this book on a, on a train in, in one train ride pretty much because I've been traveling, going to and from in the, in the, in the brief break that we had. And, uh, there was a sense of accomplishment that comes at like, Honestly, to be perfectly honest, I, like I finished a book before this, kind of semi-recently, but like I started that book a year ago. Yeah, you know, no. it felt kind of nice to be able to read with the same intensity that you know I used to have in school and stuff, and, and be able to close a book, and so that helped too. I think. Yeah, no, I, I I'm right there with you, and we will talk talk a lot about that content yeah. before we move on to talking about. What y'all came to hear us yeah. talk about, which is the subject of the podcast today. Um, I did want to briefly say that as much as we appreciate um, all of you fans, we appreciate your passion for the show. Yeah. Um, and we definitely appreciate your constructive feedback. Um, we've definitely seen some of the messages that have been left directed yeah. at our lawyer Galen after last week's episode. And... Um, Obviously, some of it constructive criticism. Yeah. Some of it, uh, which we forward, we we had to filter what we we looked at all of it. Yeah, obviously. right. But we had to filter what we sent to Galen. Right, but in terms of like what we've seen go into his DMs, oh, um, yeah, right. He's it's just there's a line where it stops being constructive criticism and it kind of enters the territory of being a personal attack. And so, just going forward, uh, we would just ask that we, you know we know that you have a lot of affection for. Jacob and I's rapport, but as we introduce new people, the please just like welcome them into the family with open arms because they are, uh, they are part of the the media said what family. Yeah, and you know maybe it was a mistake on our part to have a guest so early on in the series mm. because we talked about it and as podcasts, uh, what's the term? So, so like, you know, experts or I'm trying to think of something that's yeah. never sounding as people who <clears throat> voraciously consume other people's podcasts like we do. We recognize some of the tropes and the things of like, oh, it's always a mistake. You know, all the episodes with guests are never as good, you know. And so maybe we made a mistake, but I thought, I don't know. I, I don't, I stand by the decision to have him appear in the third episode. Yeah, I, I think he brought a lot to the episode. And so. we would be stupid if we were to do a Twilight Imperium uh, fourth edition episode without 
someone like him. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, you know, just open mind, just because it's not someone whose personal life we're talking about, like on He Said What, you know, just because he's someone who might even be smarter than us and has something to say that isn't about his girlfriend or whatever, like you're so used to the guests we have on the other podcast, doesn't mean they don't have something valuable to say. And, you know, if you can't get past that hump and just listen to the episode, you're never going to know that. So I, I suggest those who skip that episode to listen to the whole thing because in many ways it's our best so far. Yeah, it, it was a very thorough episode. I think a lot of you would find it really educational. And it was one of the first episodes where we were approaching kind of a new form of media, right? The board game. Yes. In yeah, this yeah. episode as well, we are going to be introducing... Another form of media to the media said what list of mm-hmm. all media. Mm-hmm. And today we are going to be talking about Kurt Vonnegut's 1969 novel, The Slaughterhouse Five, or The Children's Crusade, mm. A Dusty Dance with Death. So, <laughs> ah, where to begin with this novel? Um, Kurt Vonnegut, sort of a towering figure in the literary community, someone that a great lot of people have a great deal of affection for. Yeah. He is a postmodern writer, which uh, means a lot of things, but in terms of time period, it means that his writing sort of emerged after the Second World War. The content, the tone, the style of it, very informed by the events of the Second World War, mm. the Holocaust, among other things, and a very clear stylistic break from modernist writers who came before him. If you think about someone like James Joyce, his style can be described as, you know, darkly comedic, can be described as metatextual, metafictional. Mm. Uh, It can be described as bleak, hopeful, hilarious, depressing. Uh, A great deal of seemingly conflicting adjectives are often attributed to the writing of Kurt Vonnegut. uh, And he's someone who's very much beloved in the literary community. So Jacob, going into this book, I guess I'll ask you, what familiarity, if any, did you have to the person of Kurt Vonnegut or what he kind of represents in the literary world. Well, before I get into that, I just I want the listeners at home uh, just to, to, to be aware of the fact that Cole gave that spiel without any sort of note card or anything like that, which isn't to say that that's common practice with us, but if you compare that to some of the histories I've had to do where it's just... The guy, you know, the Godfather was a Coppola Francis thing. And oh, yours are also, like, much more detailed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just saying that was pretty impressive, and, and we'll have to do things where you, you, you know, you present the history a little more often. Um, but uh, in terms of your question, uh, I think this, I'm pretty sure this is the first, <laughs> say Francis Ford Coppola, the first Kurt Vonnegut story I read. He's obviously a name I'm familiar with, having some you know, a fleeting familiarity with, with literature. And uh, so and I always thought, oh, eventually I'll read something of his. Um, but usually that's like with the footnote of in school. And now that I'm out of school, there's a good chance I never would have read anything of his, especially because I think this is the only thing he's written, I'll admit, that I've heard of in doing some of my own private research. But uh, little to no familiarity with him. Always thought he had a great name. Uh, and just sort of one of those great author names and uh, that sort of told you what kind of story he wrote. But I, I, I don't know if the name was immediately connected to Slaughterhouse-Five with me. I knew of that book, I knew of the title, but I don't know if I knew they were, that, that author wrote that book, you know? And I, I don't, I didn't, I honestly didn't know what the book was about going into it. It was this rare thing of being like, I just see the title, and let's just, it could be, I have thoughts for what it could be about, but let's see it. My guess was correct for what it was about, because 
even though it is sort of an ambiguous title that can mean a lot of things, for some reason I had some idea of what I thought it would be about, even before I, I read, read that preface or, or... You mean that it was a war novel? The, yeah, if we, it's a war novel specifically about, I assumed it was about uh, prison camp. Okay. Just because I thought... But I guess I thought Slaughterhouse-Five was a... Cl- like, Slaughterhouse was a clever sort of... Me- a, a meta- like a, a, a metaphorical title for a, a prison yeah, camp. Yeah, so, which is funny because it's actually it's one not- of the least clever, most literal <laughs> things in the novel. Well, but isn't there is a real... like a, It's also a real slaughterhouse. That's the it, thing. And yeah. Kurt Vonnegut, the author, was actually in a slaughterhouse. Right. And so, so it, like... Well, it's, it's my... my, <laughs> my assumption that it was a metaphor was wrong too and i mean you know i'm sure uh, he had to choose the title for it like obviously it evokes kind of what he's dealing with but it is funny that among like all of the clever sort of uh metaphorical language going on here the title slaughterhouse five is really just the address of an actual slaughterhouse it is a good title though as a title that just hooks you because and I can't believe we haven't talked about this before, but it almost feels like we need to do companion podcasts now just about titles of the things we've reviewed because that's a whole thing. I can't believe we've gotten into font and not titles. But anyways, this, to me, might be one of the best titles of things we've looked at yet because it, it is a book that if you just had it, even in a vacuum where I wasn't aware that it was a successful book, if you just took a bunch of books and gave me the titles, this is probably the one that I might be like, hmm. This all being said, there is an angle to this book that I was not expecting at all and later found out was something people associated with not just this book, but Kurt Vonnegut's writing in general, what kind of author he was in terms of genre. And that's what I'm excited to delve into with you. But I yeah. thought... And be, yeah. well, full disclosure, I, I feel like you're probably I don't know what we're trying to hide. Yeah, 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 yeah I, I feel like you're probably referring to some of the science fiction elements. Yeah, totally. And um, that's partially why I thought this would be a good first novel for us to read. A little bit of my history with Kurt Vonnegut, which is not very extensive. Uh, I've read a fair bit of... DeLillo, David Foster Wallace, uh, George Saunders. These are writers that I really like that owe a big debt to Kurt Vonnegut. Mm-hmm. You'd see their writing compared to Kurt Vonnegut very often. He was kind of like, uh, I don't know, the father in some ways of like a postmodern movement that a lot of the writers that I read have come out of. But like sort of embarrassedly, I have to admit, I haven't read much Kurt Vonnegut. I read a short story in my freshman year of high school called Harrison Bergeron that they had us read. It's often in like high school reading texts, and the, basically the the uh, basis of that story is that the character, um, there's sort of this heroic kind of comic figure, which you know seems to be the deal with a lot of Vonnegut's protagonists named Harrison Bergeron, and he exists in a world where they want everyone to be equal, and so they impose these like very. Uh, inelegant physical handicaps on people so like if you're fast they're gonna like tie bricks to your feet and they do uh, a bunch of things like that with everyone so that everyone is exactly equal Mm. and at the time coming from like a sort of conservative town i remember all of us in high school read it and thought it was like a very hilarious satire satire of socialism and communism of course years later you find out that it was sort of actually kurt vonnegut's satire of bad satire about communism because Kurt Vonnegut famously had like very socialist um, communist views. And so I think it's just a testament to what a deep writer he is. This book, Slaughterhouse-Five, I have probably purchased three to four times. (laughs) I feel like I have a history of buying this book in a period of my life where something crazy is about to happen. Uh, There's going to be a death in my family and I'm one chapter in and then I fly home for the funeral and... 
a pandemic happens at yeah. some point and I'm one chapter in and I leave my book at school and, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm one chapter in and I end up having to leave the country for something and leaving my book behind. And so I probably started this book three or four times, um, never made it past probably two or three chapters, but it was always something that did actually grab me, I guess not enough to finish it, but in thinking about a novel that would be fun for us to read, uh, I wanted it to be something that had literary merit. Yeah. I wanted it to be something that I genuinely felt like could become one of my favorite novels, uh, but also that wasn't too much of a time commitment to read. And I thought that from what I, the little I understood about this book, that what Vonnegut was doing with genre would be really interesting for me and you to discuss. Yeah. Because I know that you have a great affection for like, Obviously, science fiction, yeah, yeah. Uh, war stories to some degree, and then just like pulpy books in general, Absolutely. which yeah, this yeah, yeah. book is in some ways a tribute to. And so, yeah, I wasn't expecting that at all. So. Yeah, that's <laughs> largely why I chose it. So I'm glad that it's not <laughs> no something idea. that you were expecting. No, that's uh, that's uh, no, it's just making me even more excited for the the ensuing dialogue. But um, I think I, you know, in doing some of my research too about him. I, 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 you know, you touched upon his his political alignment, which was more than I read about. Like I, you know, I, I, I brushed through that and just out of curiosity. The way he died, though, do you know about this? No, talk to me. Incredibly tragic. He lived in he lived in a brownstone, in, I think the Upper East Side, and he was like doing some. He was out on the fire escape or something, or doing something though from a semi, you know. Elevate, you know, and took a nasty fall, hit the ground, got back up, and kept going on about his day. And then maybe like four days later, died from injuries oh sustained from that, you know, from a fall. So you know, so maybe it it's telling to me that, the, yeah, maybe it's telling to me that that that, that that's what I latched on to in all my research is how he, he passed away. But that's just the one thing that I did. You know, I read this book. At some point last week, so I did my research back then. That's really the only thing I really remember it from. We'll see how much I can remember from the actual book. But, uh, yeah, like you said, so it goes. It is kind of this thing, this interesting period to <laughs> uh, his life. Oh, and it's kind of comic and tragic in the same Give way that his writing survived. is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. we probably so, should yeah. briefly mention before we get into talking about the book yeah. that Kurt Vonnegut is someone who is not unfamiliar with tragedy um, mm. in his personal life. He obviously was a soldier in the war. Yeah. He really was present for the bombing of Dresden Jeez. that this book centers on. And I believe later in life, I want to say his brother and sister-in-law both died somewhat tragically and he ended up adopting and raising their I children. too. Yeah, yeah. It's all on the Wikipedia <laughs> page, <laughs> listeners. Um, and other places too. But yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but he is someone that for me, I think oftentimes writers will try to take on subject matter and it feels like they're sort of trying to beat you over the head with mm -hmm. how much they understand it, how smart they are, how much they've lived this experience and that they're qualified to authentically talk about it. And I think it's a testament to really how qualified Kurt Vonnegut is to tackle this subject, mm -hmm. that he doesn't feel the need to do any of that. You... Yeah. Don't come away from this feeling like Kurt Vonnegut wants you to think that hey, he was some kind of wartime badass. <laughs> you don't come away from it feeling like uh, he really needs to do anything to convince you that the thematic content of this book is something that he is sort of uniquely 
qualified to tackle. And so even though he does insert himself in the text, I never feel like he is insisting or beating me over the head with the idea that uh, he understands what war is. It's just sort of like latent in the kind of writing that he does and the comedy that he finds in it. Um, Whereas I feel like someone who perhaps was less familiar with some of the tragedies that he's talking about would be less inclined to mine so much comedy from them. I mean, and they would, it's an, yeah, it's an expertise that's sort of revealed in like his resist, his, 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 him resisting or, uh, not, you know, expertise revealed in, um, him not, yeah, yeah, sorry, I'm saying the same thing I said few seconds ago and just the resistance he expressed he, he shows with just what he's including there's no overcompensation and like oh I was here this is how bad it was like you were saying I feel like there's things are explained really bluntly sometimes and just really you know it's just like this is how it happened and you know just you're left to sit with the sentence and there's no like there's not too much detail into just how like you're just the weight of it's just there and you're like oh this is really awful in a way that I don't think anyone who hadn't been through that sort of lived experience would feel comfortable doing, you know, because I can imagine if I were to write something like this, I would spend so much time trying to prove to the reader that, like, I know what I'm talking about and I did my research. But, yeah, it really, that's, that's, that's an interesting point. Um, and the humor, too. But, uh, I forgot what I was... And also, but also, <laughs> like, I do think it works as, like... I haven't read too much anti-war literature, but, like, you know, I've read... What's that one? The things they carry, mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. You know, the cliche. I haven't read that. I've read some some chapters from that because I think that, I'm pretty sure that's an anthology series. Um, I've never read the whole thing, but things like that. The people and this one is the one that to me the, was just the most um, sort of grueling and, and, and the most like, oh god, this is I cannot survive a day in this sort of environment, um, which to me. Is, is what makes an anti-war but potent is to be like ah, I can't do that I'm not God we're, you know, we're in trouble if this sort of thing ever happens again um, and it's weird that that happens in a book that's like there's also all this other sci-fi and comedy stuff shoehorned into it you know what I mean like it's it's impressive um, yeah yeah I think I'm probably misattributing the quote that I'm about to paraphrase to Kurt Vonnegut, but I do, in my mind, it comes from him. Um, I believe it was Kurt Vonnegut who said something along the lines of, it's impossible to make an anti-war movie. And the the closest he can ever imagine getting to an anti-war movie would be a movie that sort of throws the idea of structure out the window entirely and it follows like a young man from the time that he's mm. born. We see him in his family dynamic. We see him fall in love and grow up and go off to the army. Yeah. And on his first day there, through some kind of horrible accident, like a stray bullet hits him and he <laughs> dies and that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, and I think basically what he was getting at in saying that it'd be impossible to make an anti-war movie is that in depicting these things, we often glamorize them. Yeah. Even without trying to, even if we're trying to make them seem awful, there's something kind of heroic about uh, the idea of battling. There's something yeah. that appeals to us. And I think a lot of what he's doing here in introducing the science fiction elements and showing the parts of the war that he does show and not showing the parts that he doesn't show. And in providing really only one scene that he like really clearly calls out of a character doing anything like a character would do or anything like her, you know, heroism. 
I feel like part of what he's trying to do through all of that is really depict war as something that is not only not glamorous, but like disgusting, yeah. embarrassing, shit stained, gross, uh, unappealing. Like yeah. it's just like not somewhere that you want to be. No, exactly. And, uh, I don't know. It, it's it's a very different portrait of war that I have ever experienced in any kind of media, really. And you get the well, you get the, the you get that he's practicing what he preaches in this in moments like like it, it, the way he he gives so much backstory, and in the main character's case, whose name already is escaping me story in the future past the war after the war you get so much of that that like the war itself in Dresden and all the the, the, the war the, the prison camps and all this really does feel like they lasted as long as they really did in the character's life in the story just because there's so much else going on and like the first guy and I'm definitely not going to remember this guy's name the guy who he gets captured with Oh, Ronald Weary? Weary, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about, like, the idiot he's in the, the snow with? Yeah, yeah. Who, who dies later. <laughs> that character to me, I was just remarking on how real that felt. And not like I know somebody like Weary, but, like, that character, he's, he deviates from the book for, like, from the story for, like, a few pages just to talk about Weary and who he was and what kind of kid he was. And, and by the time he resumed the battlefield, or when they're running away together, by the time we went back to the war with Weary and the main character, I, like, knew Weary, and I felt like I knew how he'd... Like, I was like, oh, this fucking guy. Yeah, of course he's here. You know what I mean? Like, it, it really felt that way. And that spoke to a larger thing of, like, to see them navigating battlefields and stuff, I'm like, oh, my God. They really... They don't... They, they are as old as they are. Like, it just felt like they, they, there was no barrier between me imagining people are... Like, it just... They felt like people our age... Younger, totally. It just felt like oh, some one of these assholes. It's like one of these guys I know being given a gun and told to kill. Like yeah, of course they would do it, and there'd be weird emotions that they'd have. Like it just felt very like I know these people, as opposed to like you were saying, war heroes or whatever. They did feel like people who grew up with you know, and then got hit by a stray bullet and whatever, and just the choices they made. Yeah, and weary also specifically. <laughs> I think kind of re- he's so funny. First of all, like I actually. I was laughing aloud reading this book in a lot of spots. I chuckled less toward the end um, because I think it sort of... Uh, had a few moments towards the end that made me laugh. There yeah, were yeah, some, yeah. but especially early on, like in the scenes with Weary, uh, I was just dying. Like Kurt Vonnegut really... There's almost like a Salinger quality to his writing where I feel like he can really skewer like a whole class of person through like a very short description. You, oh, he yeah. can say one thing about someone and it does feel like, oh, I know this type of person... Kurt Vonnegut gets who they are, and there's something very funny about them. Like there is about it's all of sad us. Too, there was something also reading about Weary that I was sad. just like, oh, "This is like I know, like I didn't like him, and I really didn't. I, I was like, I would hate this person. Yeah, but there's that inherent like because it, it doesn't. It gets into his childhood and there's stuff. Oh yeah, and like the it, kids would always right. That's pick, what it was. They like leave him out. Yeah, and so he yeah. would try to find a kid, and that's how the description to then leave out. Yeah. yeah. And you're just like, oh, that's just this insidious thing that, yeah. So I, and then, and then his constant, like, 
Three, he was the one who was like, we're the three musketeers. Over. Yes, it's just and like, like so the other real. two don't consider him right. musketeers. It's, uh, it's just cringeworthy. And it also felt like he's <laughs> like the worse. type of person who has grown up consuming the media that Vonnegut totally. is kind of working oh, against. Yeah, yeah, 100%. He's infatuated. It talks about him writing the story and talking to his family <laughs> when he gets home about, yeah, I dragged this kid through the snow. And I saved he, his life. And then he beats him up and gets cut like and the germans are just there the characterization of the germans in this book is actually really interesting um but when the germans do find them they're sort of just like watching as ronald weary is beating the shit out of (laughs) billy pilgrim on the ground Billy Pilgrim, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh they're like sort of laughing because they're like how are these two americans that are out here in the middle of the snow like on the verge of death how like why are why is one of them beating the other up and how do they not know we're here yeah, for like the first portion of, I'm sorry, listeners, I got something in my eye, but I'm. I, I don't Do you need to get it out? It'll come out, but I'm just worried. Are you sure I can like pause? No, 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 we're all good. We're all good. If it gets excessive, then we might pause it. But I'm, <laughs> I'm just worried. I'm gonna. I, I'm hoping it doesn't seem clear from the. I all right, anyway, it seems clear from the audio. I guess should we? Let's I'll jump maybe provide like We've a little kind of yeah, yeah, plot yeah, yeah, yeah. synopsis, sort of. Um, this book is told in a sequence that makes spoilers. Kind of impossible. Uh, Everything is sort of spoiled from the beginning of the book. It just sort of deepens as you go on. But um, if you don't want spoilers, you should probably stop listening listening here. But also, what are you doing? Uh, So Slaughterhouse-Five follows uh, Billy Pilgrim, the protagonist. And he is a lanky individual Mm. who apparently, he says, travels through time in his mind. He has interactions with aliens called Trophamadors. Uh, these aliens look like plungers. They are green. They have a hand on top of their head with an eye in it. And they see time differently than we do. And the way that Trophamadors see... Or Trophamadorians? How would you say Trof- I, I do think there was, a, there was an extra syllable I wasn't pronouncing in my head while reading it. So it might be Trophamadorian. I should definitely find this. But I do think that they're Trophamadorians. And... Uh, Basically, the way they see time, they describe it as being like Mount Rushmore. Like, they right. can see all of it. They can see the beginning at the end. There's a kind of a weird sentence where it talks about how the Tralfamador, Tralfamadorians <laughs> see human beings, like great millipedes with baby legs on one end and old person legs on the other. <laughs> and so there's some interesting stuff going on with time here. Mm-hmm. And so we bounce around between the different events of Billy Pilgrim's life, both on Earth and on the planet Tralfamador. Uh, on Earth, he is an optometrist. <laughs> he goes. This is to, all after the war. Right? Yeah, yeah, he goes to optometry school. This is after the war. He has two kids. Right. He's married. Uh, earlier in his life, he is a soldier. He's right. present for the bombing of Dresden. He's not exactly a soldier. It seems he goes out to like assist a chaplain initially, right. but kind there of gets like caught thing. on the yeah, front yeah. lines. He had to replace, and so he yeah. ends up a prisoner of war uh, and is working in a slaughterhouse like. Um, Kurt Vonnegut did his own life uh, and he was in a meat locker so he was able to survive the bombing of Dresden and so we kind of follow his childhood his experiences in the war loosely, his life after the war and his experiences on the planet Tralfamador and that is kind of the novel, we bounce around loosely I think it's pretty masterful how Kurt Vonnegut, not to talk too much about quality yet, but um, how Kurt Vonnegut's able to balance all of the different kind of threads of his life that are going on. Totally. I never really felt like I was in a place that I didn't want to be or that we were cutting away from action that 
I wanted to continue with. It kind of felt like as I followed the narrative that was being presented to me, everything sort of made sense. And I was never lost, despite the fact that Billy Pilgrim himself is lost or (laughs) unstuck in time. (laughs) Unstuck, And um, I guess maybe the only other thing to talk about is that the first and last chapters are written primarily in the first person, with Kurt Vonnegut talking about his own experiences. There's also some first person spattered throughout the novel where he'll occasionally say, and I was there, me, the author. And so he was there with Billy Pilgrim in the world of Slaughterhouse-Five. He sees a lot of these things. He'll occasionally interact. There's one particularly funny moment where they see the city of Dresden and it looks beautiful for the first time. And somebody says, Oz. And Kurt Vonnegut's like, and I, it was me who said Oz. I, I actually said that. So these are like credit. cool minutes, this sort of like uh, cool moments that kind of pull you out of um, the fiction of the book, yeah. but also feel very intertwined with the fiction of the book. There, there's a lot going on here with like reality and fiction, but that's kind of a loose yeah. synopsis of what The Slaughterhouse Five is as a novel. Yeah, and uh, if we're going semi linearly, I. This might be wild, but the first chapter, I think, was my favorite part of the the book, and that wasn't a thing of like me being like, oh, it's gone downhill, but just I really enjoyed the first chapter in him, and I think I just I just like when writers write about writing too, mm-hmm. but it was just sort of I liked when he was talking about like drinking too much and then going and leaving Cape Cod to find his old war buddy and how he'd call them up and like tell the operator, can you find this person and call up old girlfriends? Like there was something not pleasant, but just like a little pleasant though. I mean, compared to, yeah, yeah. compared to the later thing, but like he's taking his daughter and her buddy on a trip to his Virginia or somewhere to visit his, his friend who he ultimately has that big conversation with. Um, yeah, don't they like go to Disneyland or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe, but it was some. Yeah, it was. It was like the first time she had left the state or something like that. It's a road trip. It's maybe a road not trip. Disneyland. They go somewhere. They go somewhere. It's like yeah, he tries to make it fun for them, and it's just something kind of charming about that. Um, and I, you know, I love small town type sense of stuff. <laughs> so I was just sort of suckered into that, but expecting it to eventually be about what it was about. But I found. And this plays into his war quote that you were saying, like his whole conversation with his his war buddy's wife was interesting when she was like really not happy with him. <laughs> he was his friend's like, no, no, it's not you. And he was like, it definitely is me. And then it turns out it's because she heard he's writing a book about the war, and she's like, oh, and then John Wayne's gonna or somebody's gonna be in it, and he promises her, no, it's not gonna be that. And I just really liked. I thought it was a cool way of starting the book, a way that I think could probably be butchered in, in, in less uh, talented hands. And um, it sets up some of my favorite stuff about it, which is the fact that he does not expect the book to be that good. Like he talks about it being a mess and stuff and like being like, I'm just doing this because I have to write about it eventually. And like, what, I'm just going to put it all out there. And then the other thing, which is he predicts how he says at one point it's oh. going to end with a pooty <laughs> a bird saying pooty wheat and it begins the, it, begins it begins like this listen Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time and it ends oh does yeah yeah, he, yeah. Gets the beginning. he does it a couple of times and then you get times. to the next chapter and it says listen Billy it's so yeah. cool and then 
I read it pretty much in one sitting, and I forgot about yeah. the, that he made that promise, and he, you know, in the end, he makes good on it, which is a, it might be the only spoiler um, that really I would maybe be upset about hearing about. But again, he spoils it. He spoils it in the first chapter. I just forgot that he said. <laughs> I, I read that, and I was like, oh, I bet that's how it's gonna end. <laughs> he says um, the very first line of the novel is "All this happened, comma more or less," right? Which right. I feel like is a great. It's such a great orientation in the world of the novel because for the first chapter, which I also, I just think is like a master class. And I, I don't know if I would agree that it was my favorite chapter, although if I try to think about the divisions no, in the yeah, other chapters, it's, just it's like isolated. this is the only chapter that really seems divided from the others. And it was so good and so clever. And he seems immensely likable in it. Yeah. Doesn't yeah, yeah, seem yeah, to yeah, take yeah. himself too seriously. And he's not describing himself in a terribly flattering no, it's not he talks about like drinking too much. Like, he just seems like just... realistic. There's nothing sexy about like the life that he's describing. <laughs> no. It seems like he lives a quiet life. No. And uh he he has a habit of sort of introducing like little refrains and things sure. that will come to be repeated repeated or incorporated throughout the novel. I think it has something to do with what he's saying about time where like mm. sentences like somewhere a big dog barked mm-hmm. will be repeated <laughs> at different points. And I think in some ways like later that kind of helps to orient us to like where Billy Pilgrim's mind is at, where we're oh, kind of like, sure, sure. you know, like these people have faces like radium dials. And then my father pulled out a radium dial and it all sorts starts to like blend together a little bit. But here in the first chapter even, I mean, he's like quoting these songs. He, my name is Jan Janssen, mm. I work in Wisconsin. Sure, like, that comes back. Yeah. It keeps coming back. And uh, there's something interesting, I think, about his writing from the very first chapter, which is that he doesn't seem terribly concerned with keeping anything a secret. Uh, his writing almost reminds me of like, you know, Penn and Teller, their magic, mm-hmm. how their whole shtick is like, we're going to show sure. you everything yeah, yeah, and it's still going to produce that wow effect. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of what he's doing here in the sense that like from the beginning, we know exactly what the novel's about. We yeah. know what the first line is. We know the last line. Yeah. We essentially know what the plot is. We know it's going to be about this firebombing of Dresden. Mm-hmm. Um, we know the struggles that he's had with it and frequently within the course of the novel he kind of pulls us out of it a little bit yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh he also talks in the beginning about some of i think like the thematic inspirations he talks about so it goes you know that gets introduced in the very beginning mm-hmm. as something that is said anytime any person or animal dies in the entire course of the book which helps to drive home i just think like the the endlessness of death and the like how constant suffering is and so from the very beginning i don't know i guess what i'm saying is that i also really really enjoyed the first chapter and i think it sets up a lot of what is so effective about the book is so it goes established in the first chapter is it not let's see i think there might be some things that we might be giving the first chapter a little too much credit because Maybe so it goes isn't in the first chapter. I don't know. I think the first chapter. I think, in, but I think you're right. It's it's just because it's the one chapter I can isolate and yeah. think about. I think maybe a more apropos way of putting it is, it's the world I enjoyed the most because as you mm-hmm. talk about, there's different worlds that were going in between, and that was always the one I was like, I kind of want to go back there. 
but I also have other rankings of the worlds too that uh, that we can uh, discuss. But um, yeah, I'm really curious actually because I definitely had like clear favorites too. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, places yeah. that I liked spending um, time in the most. But yeah, but then, but I, I, I just sort of, I did enjoy. When I was reading that, I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll dig this, and then, for. And then it switches perspective and it becomes about this fictional character. And I was before that thinking, oh, it'll be about, it's going to be about Kurt. Kurt it's going to be in the first person. It's going to be. So that was a major curveball. And then another curveball was uh, Weary gets introduced pretty shortly after Pilgrim gets introduced. So yeah. I was like, oh, cool. It'll be something about, it'll be an ensemble piece, you know, about a bunch of different characters. Because we got a lot about Weary's backstory. And at that point, maybe even more about Weary. The amount of backstory we were getting about Weary rival Billy's, uh-huh. and Billy's backstory was more like what happens to him eventually. The whole thing about him being able to become unstuck from time, and him being an optometrist, and him being on the radio, and all this stuff, which I took with an immense grain of salt of just like this is all in his head. Yeah, and it's just going to be a little quirk that you know this guy's kind of just to tell us that this one guy of the ensemble we're undoubtedly going to be familiar with by the end of it. This is just like one thing that's gonna clue us into like, okay, maybe this Billy guy's a little unhinged. Little did I know it's the whole book. So I have a question for you on that. First, I wanna say, so it goes, said <laughs> twice in the first chapter, oh, wow. but not explained, right? Because oh, it's it what the Tralfamadorians say whenever anyone dies. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, so that's why. Oh, okay, I missed that. There's okay. nothing else I, to I, say, I so they say, so it goes every time. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, so not explained until later. Uh, I'm curious, at what point did you kind of realize that this was in some ways going to be a science fiction novel? And I actually think it's... You could argue that it's more of a science fiction novel, <laughs> at least structurally and content-wise, than it is a war novel. I think it has more to do with war than science, but uh, I think... Structurally, it's more of a science fiction novel than a war novel. So, True. when did you realize or decide that that's was going to be a big part of the book? I can't. I'm definitely not going to be able to remember what the scenes were exactly, but I've got two sort of guesses at how I handled it. Um, the first, the one I was definitely like, oh, okay, was when he gets abducted by the <laughs> ship, and that's when I was like, okay, this is all. This is the book. It's like it. I see what's going. But before that, when they first dug in, delved into the Tralfamadorian yeah lore, it just kept going and it got like really, really in depth. And mind you, I start this passage wherever it is, thinking again, this is all in his head, and like it's just a little quirk. Yeah, and they just it's just giving coloring that character a bit, and the the real stuff is that is is what his family's thinking and his daughter's thinking that he's crazy and this is all in his head. And they just go really in depth into this stuff in a way that I'm like, is this all? Like, I just, I was like, this is almost <laughs> like, I guess this is smart, but like, it feels like something that, like, for sure, an editor should have been like, we don't really need this much stuff. Because I did not expect it to go that deep into it. I thought, again, it was just this little world he built, he built this one character and sort of thought about in his head. Um, to me, it felt just as important as him crashing. And being in that plane crash in Vermont, you know, what mm-hmm. I mean, just like this little detail to his life. It's like, oh, I'm sure this will be referenced, but never. So I think that's that could be the answer. 
just because I was like, I, I clocked it as being like, it's kind of weird. I like it, but like, it seems like a weird choice to do this much. Yeah. And by the abduction, I was for sure like, yeah, cool. Here we go. This is a whole, this is like half the book, you know, <laughs> which I liked. Yeah. And you knew about it before you read it? I didn't know about it before I read it the first time, but I think having tried to read it like three times, I was, I was clued in. Um, I didn't know like what percentage yeah, yeah. of the book would have to do with that. <laughs> and it is like a lot, but at the same time, for as much as Trafalmador is talked about, and I think the views of the aliens are espoused by different characters and have a lot to do with the themes of the book, we actually don't get a lot of pages on the planet Trafalmador. Um You mean you know, like, like he's describing he's, it or when they're on it, actually on it? Like, describing what's going... Oh, so, like, when they're actually on it. Like, yeah, there, there just... aren't that many scenes or, like, prolonged scenes that occur there. I mean, he sort of seems to yeah, have, like, a second scenes. life like living that. under yeah. this dome. Um, but at least for me, it felt like there was less of that than the war, for instance. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think when, when I imagine... When I say those worlds rival I, each other, and, and it's more just, like, anything about Dralfamador at all to me. You know, because I guess the planets aren't that big of a part of it. And I, I wanted to, in case I incorrectly said that Billy died in the plane crash. I don't think I did. I think I just said it was a plane crash. Yeah, I don't think that you did He dies. He's assassinated. <laughs> well, he thinks death, right? he's going to be assassinated. What actually, how does he, what actually happens? That was one of the, uh, yeah, we, anyway, <laughs> this is not what the podcast You know, I actually don't questions. know if we. He wasn't killed well, by that laser, that ray gun? He well, okay. I mean, we get a scene where he's killed by a ray gun. Yeah. Do we, Jacob and Cole, think that Bill... Like, and this is where it gets hard to talk about, like, what actually happens in yeah, the novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I do think... Ah, oh, jeez. We're, we're getting into a whole can of worms here that I think is important to talk about, and we should. But I do think Kurt Vonnegut is kind of making fun of... Truth, in some ways, I don't think he's someone that really believes in objective truth. Mm. Um, I think he... I think he would laugh to know that people are debating, like, what events in the book actually, like, happened. I do also think that there are, like, heavy, heavy suggestions throughout that in the world of this science fiction novel, it's all in Billy's head. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And so in that sense, does he get killed by a ray gun when he's speaking because this guy from the war like actually commissioned like a hit on him? I don't believe that that happens. We do get that scene, but in the beginning of the book Kurt Vonnegut like kind of gives the lifespan of yeah. you know, he he was born in this year, he died in this year. Yeah. I don't know that we get the true cause of his death. I'd have to go but back and check. Yeah, yeah. But okay. he for, he like prophesies that his death is oh, going right. to be this Oh, right. It is a prophecy. Thing. Okay, yeah, that's true. It's 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 not said as something that happens. It says that he knows yeah. how he's going to die. But then the whole time he's saying he knows what's going to happen to him. Well, well, and it happens. But I think that, you know, yeah. by the time in his life he's saying that he knows what's going to happen, I think... I mean, there's, like, a comedic scene, right, where, like, someone asks him why he didn't talk about any of this before a certain year, and he says, oh, it didn't feel like, you know, it wasn't the right time. And so, <laughs> and there's also, um, I, I say that Kurt Vonnegut very obviously insists that, like, it's all in his head. I actually don't know how very obvious it is if you're not reading really closely, but there's a science fiction, a fictional science fiction author within the world of the yeah, book named 
Kilgore Trout. Yeah. And if you're reading semi-closely, you'll pick up on the fact that, like, a lot of the themes in Trout's novels, which Billy becomes obsessed with at a certain point when he's in a mental hospital, are essentially ripped off and, like, become the ideas that That Billy Pilgrim has. Right. I mean, that's a pretty clear... Yeah, the fact that he... I mean, there's, like, one about a man and a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, But still, I chose to believe it was actually happening, I think, throughout the book. As opposed to... Because I first saw it as inarguably something in his head. And then it just got so deep that I was like, no, there's something going on. Something at play here that justifies me not taking... It for absolute certainty that this is just an like I was like he wouldn't have devoted this much of the book to this stuff if it was so obviously something that just happens in his head I mean maybe he would have but to me the amount of times we kept returning to this Tralfamadori stuff I was just like oh, there's clearly something big going on that uh, you know that, that's not just Billy going crazy yeah no I mean I agree. I think, like, on the one hand, clearly it's all in his head, and on the other hand, like, reading it, I read it as a science fiction novel where these scenes are happening, and I don't see it as, like... Because it's not presented as, like, the ravings of a man. He's not, like, reporting all of this. Like, (laughs) we see scenes, and it's Billy is here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we kind of travel there with him, and I don't know that we really get a say in, like... You know, those scenes are presented to be as real as the war scenes in right. the sense that like right. we are watching them and I didn't question any of the war scenes is actually whether they have to no me neither interesting um, that is interesting yeah because there's some crazy things that happen uh huh in that, in that too um but yeah I think uh I'm just trying to align what happens when and but eventually they get captured and they get taken to the camp and, and, and this becomes their sort of reality and, and, and you get the first glimpses of, you know, the German soldiers and, and the way they're written, which, like we talked about before with them just watching them fighting. I, there were always interesting little things he did, twists to sort of my, how I would write <laughs> a German soldier um, or how I've seen German soldiers presented that, you know, I'm not saying it made them sympathetic or anything like that, I'm far from it, but just more like, oh yeah, these were kids too. And their whole treatment of English, the English prisoners and stuff was just really interesting to me where they were like almost seeking their approval in some things and like shit talking the American soldiers together or like trying to get them to shit talk them with them and like giving them special treatment was just something that I was like, oh, this is really weird and nuanced and this must have been how it was because I wouldn't have, I feel like if I came, I would have never arrived on that theory on myself as someone who didn't see that happen. Yeah. But it, it, I never, it just felt. The only thing I would push back on um, is, and I know why you said it, but yeah. I sort of feel like, and See, this is why we need a studio listening. Yeah, this we got is, these people, got driving, people driving by, blasting music in the middle of our podcast. Anyways, you guys. Uh, what, what I would push back on is that I actually do think, for Germans better or worse, the Germans are sympathetic, <laughs> or at least as sympathetic as any other characters in the novel. I think um, maybe weird. Well, the innkeeper at the end, like that's um, a German yeah, family, sure. so I guess they're not soldiers. But the German soldiers, to me, weren't presented as being any 
rougher or more, uh, I don't know, more dastardly than, than soldiers from anywhere else. And I think when we get to, what's that, Hugo, the, the, the actual, like, American-turned-Nazi yeah, guy, great. he seemed like a real Not villain, great, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I, I wouldn't say it's, like, soft on Nazis exactly, but the soldiers themselves, I do, I, I think in the foreword it is where Kurt Vonnegut talks about his dad before he died saying something to Kurt along the lines of, you know, you never wrote a story with a villain in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like the, the German soldiers, and it's something people could take issue with, but I don't know that they are presented in a particularly negative light or at least not more negative than well I, I i don't think they were you know as someone who's you know i've seen things where a lot of the intention is to make to get you in the head of a german soldier before you know they yeah um a sympathetic nazi sympathetic <laughs> Which you know, you know, I've seen. I remember seeing that movie a while ago, a few yeah, years ago. Weird, weird film. Weird film. And obviously, yeah. Anyway, this is. We'll do an episode about that at some point. But if this just didn't to me, and maybe I wasn't reading close enough. It didn't devote the time that those other things have. It didn't feel like it was a goal of his to make to get you to understand the head of a Nazi, one of these these no 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 guys. And yeah. So because of that, to me, I just. It felt like this, like, this is, then they did this, and then they said this. There were a lot of times they said these sort of childish things and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, to me, I was just like, oh, these are just real people. These are real kids. And so there's that understanding of just, like, you know, how people usually talk about the war, which is like, oh, people just involved in a machine and just whatever. I never felt like, to me, like, this one soldier in this scene's the bad guy, like you were saying. It all just felt like they were part of this system that was sort of the villain. And, um... But I didn't find them sympathetic. I just thought they were just like this force. And just no, like, I think you're... You know what I mean? I think between what we're saying is the truth, which yeah. is that I don't think he writes them sympathetically. I can't imagine him getting called out for that. You know, yeah. Just felt. I don't think he writes them unsympathetically. I think, right, yeah. I think they seem, like you're saying, they're Real. just like people kind of in the world of this. Yeah. They like to joke. But, and, and then the confusing thing, though, is he'll spend, he'll spend some of that time, he'll give some of that time to American soldiers in describing how bad, and, and, or at least, you know, sort of corrupted a lot of them are. And yeah. so you just get more time and description devoted to those characters yeah. that you don't get devoted to, you know, and you just end up maybe, uh, you know, cursing out some of those guys more than you would some of the nameless Nazis just because he really... And Hugo is just such a great to me he didn't feel like a villain because he wasn't in it enough to be a villain but he's yeah. just such a reprehensible character in the way he t- I, I can't remember there's that scene though where he, the one scene where he comes in and he describes what he's wearing and how it's this yeah. self <laughs> created aggrandizing like which Nazi is cowboy like, thing and he like got he's the only guy who wears a white who has like a white swastika or something, or what yeah. kind of blue swats or whatever he's wearing, cowboy boots, and just, it's just so, like, again, it's cringeworthy. It's like, oh, yeah, this asshole, this guy, like, you know I mean? Well, talking about the characters, um, this is going to seem really narrow, but I mm-hmm. think it's worth, I, I just want to talk the listeners through a journey I had with the book. Yeah. Um, and I, I have to say, full disclosure, this is coming from someone who really, like wants to like Kurt Vonnegut. So I'm mm-hmm. going to be very generous in yeah. giving him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
And I understand that that wouldn't be everyone's experience reading this. But I remember at a certain point, there were certain lines often that did make me laugh that uh, were pretty sexist, right? Within like the world of this book, um, Billy's daughter comes up to him at one point early on and she's always like trying to bug him in a way that is like very well-intentioned uh but it's not a particularly flattering portrait of her and i think kurt describes her vonnegut describes her at one point as um like all of the responsibility of taking care of her father or something had turned her into quote quite a bitchy flibber gibbet or something like that (laughs) and from there, the portraits of women in the novel continue to be pretty unflattering. Um, <laughs> his wife. <laughs> his wife is like, Billy's wife is, you know, very overweight, very concerned with her appearance. Vonnegut, like, describes her as ugly. I wouldn't say he describes her as ugly in a way that feels mean-spirited, so much as it feels like he's sort of like a, an alien looking down at these right, people, and right, he's like... Right. She's ugly. No one would want to marry her. Billy was stupid enough because he had a nervous break around the time they met. Anyway, so you feel sort of taken aback by these things. And by the end of the book, something that I sort of realized was that I do believe almost every character in the novel, I don't actually believe that they're portrayed wholly negatively, but I do think almost all of them are portrayed as very pathetic figures. Yes in the world of these events. And as I started to think about the physical descriptions we got of the male characters and how comical they look in a lot of these events, uh, and even like that you think about the British soldiers who were like, you know, very ripped. He describes their washboard abs, their cannonball arms, and like the way they smoke. It sort of occurred to me that I actually don't, I think there are obviously far fewer women in the novel than men, but I actually don't know that Vonnegut is really treating the women worse. I think it just, um, I don't know, in a world where everyone is being depicted as really pathetic and really vain and really stupid, seeing women depicted that way occasionally, um, sprinkled throughout, sort of like rankled my modern sensibility at moments while I was reading it. And so I'm curious to get your take on it. Like I ultimately came away feeling like I I think there's like, obviously there's sexist things said within the novel but I didn't really believe the book itself to be uh, sexist in any kind of way, but um, it was something that I imagined people would have to confront reading the novel now in 2022. Yeah, confront. I don't think there was enough of it for it to be like <laughs> a canceled book. Right, you know it's I mean? not Catch-22, uh, which they, also isn't uh, canceled, but I is... I didn't know that. Yeah, that's a rough one. It's, I mean, it's a similar kind of thing, yeah. um, but I would say more... It's less flattering yeah. portraits of women, uh, more objectifying. Whereas I, I don't sure. really feel like Vonnegut ever like objectifies well, yeah, them. There's, there's like the, the awkward one, scene where they walk in on them naked, but it sort of plays out kind of like you would imagine it playing out in reality, and they close the door. And I don't know who who naked. I don't remember this. Yeah, Billy, a guard, and uh, uh, somebody else. They're trying to go get their dinner while they're working in Dresden. And okay. they open the wrong door oh, in, yeah, like, a right, bathroom, right, right, and the right, women, right. like, scream. Right. Oh, this they're was, naked. That was a weird scene. Yeah, and he yeah. talks of, you know, he says, that oh, was, they looked yeah. beautiful. Yeah. But it's, it's sort of, there's almost something sweet about it. Like, none of the men have ever seen, like, a naked woman, or two-thirds of them haven't. And, like, they close the door, and I don't know. But then we've also, I mean, there's also the thing with, like, the, the, the woman he gets paired with. On oh, 12, the, the porn star. The porn star, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then, I mean, and then... 
the the first piece of pornography ever invented. The, the which horse. I, I, I need a fact check on that. I was so that was it was one of those things I was worried to look up and yeah. Uh, but <laughs> those get described. You know, I can't remember. They weren't ways that I was like made me blush necessarily. They felt like, and then it comes from this whole thing of like the narrator to me didn't feel like Kurt Vonnegut, even though it is third person, but mm. it's sort of that. Um, that uh, benefit of the doubt I find I often give when I read a book and they start using like slurs or something. I'm yeah. like, oh, well, this wasn't intentional. Yeah. But um, right. I mean, also should mention that even though it doesn't happen as often, like clearly race, the views, the racial views of people at this time doesn't really pop up much, but it does no, it like doesn't. pop up and it's not particularly. I'm sure I aggressive. can't even remember. Yeah. But uh, in terms of the the female, like the daughter and the mom, with them, I think maybe I was more like, uh, it was the, the wife that sort of was the thing that I was most like, uh. um, but again, not of like Kurt Vonnegut. It was like, oh, this is just like a rough. It's kind of sad. It's just sad, you know? And I think I felt, I, I mean, it's just the whole thing with just like, you know, I mean, <laughs> I think, I think there is something to maybe they were, they were equivalent, equivalently pathetic, but there's just so much more time spent with the men and the men almost feel like they earn their pathetic descriptions, you know, uh-huh. just cause you spend, and you see how they're pathetic. Whereas with the wife, if memory serves, that's how we're introduced to her Yeah, as like, she, she's ugly and blah, blah. And then I don't really remember much half her, her doing much after the fact that made me dislike. It just felt like a, I mean, she a makes an idiotic choice to drive without, that like, was, the car filter and dies. That was one of the so it goes. scenes yeah. me, honestly, which is crazy. But I read that, and I was, maybe it's because we have a history with carbon monoxide poisoning. But that was just sort of the sad thing of her uh, continuing to drive to see he her husband. And talks about how she loves him so yeah, much. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. But at the same point, I remember feeling very bad about the thoughts that Billy seems to have. I, I do think you're right. It's like sort of, I mean, the narrator describes her, but then Billy's the one thinking about how she is ugly. But then there's one scene that is very sad, but also I, when I came away from it, I did feel that it was sweet and kind of mercy-filled and redeeming in a way where... I think it's maybe after they've made love on their honeymoon or something like that. Um, again, the timeline in the book is kind of hard to follow, but she says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become beautiful for you. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to go on a diet. Right, right, right. And Billy says, oh, you don't have to do that. And he never really says anything particularly eloquent, despite the fact <laughs> that he's taken a public speaking course at some point. Um, he says, oh, you don't have to do that. And she says, um, oh, no, but I want to. I want, I want to be beautiful for you. And he says, um, I'm per- like, I'm perfectly happy right now or something like that. And she says, really? And Billy says, yeah. And then it says, this was on account of the fact that Billy had seen their future and their past many times and it had always been pretty much tolerable. And I actually read that line and didn't think that it was trying to be sarcastic. I, I sort of read it as like, oh, really? Like he in that moment realized that oh, like yeah. what she was was enough. And yeah, I mean, hopefully he was sort of devoted to her in a way. I mean, he cheated no. the one time, and she was oh, devoted right. to him. I forgot he cheated at that optometry party or something. Yeah, I forgot. About anyway, that. all this to uh, say, I think she's a sad figure. I don't think her treatment in the novel is sexist, but um, your mileage may vary. Yeah, I think I think 
I think there has to be some sexism in there for <laughs> that too. Just you know, nothing unexpected for the era. But yeah. I just think there's something. Um, I think someone writing it now, and I think it would be different. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, she, her main worth in the story is like her appearance, right? And that's a lot of the women in the story. Now, right. do is that how Kurt Vonnegut views women? Is it? trying to write a war book through like the lens of men who it's like repeatedly emphasized, like never see women and they're sort of lusty. And, um, right. Which is, I think how it gets away with it, which is why, how I can read it and be like, yeah, right. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I don't feel like, uh, the text has sexist aims or that like the sexism is, um, it's not as bad as uh, it could be. Right. It feels like accurate, I guess. For better or worse? I think, uh, yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting, that passage you brought up of him seeing everything. It is one of those, and you saying it sort of feels more like an alien looking down at a, you know, it makes me think maybe there's something he was going for, because I do think that statement, you read it as more loving than sad. I sort of read that as sad, but interesting still of just like, yeah. I don't think it's abnormal. I think it's just sort of a statement on, marriage and just sort of like yeah <laughs> I think it's something people realize you know they always talk about with marriage you reach a point where the selfish thing to do would be to get a divorce because neither of you but like you understand that there is there is value to stability and you keep it going and then you wind up falling in love again and all of it. so I think it was something about that and just sort of the stu- like I, I think that was even though it was sad and a testament to Billy's weird unstuck powers and stuff I think it was he was going for something um, I mean he's obviously going for something with this book and, well, and the sci-fi element but. that's not like a particularly big scene in the novel like I'm talking about it like it is but yeah, I do remember it does get to a I guess you could call it a theme but the idea of like the sweet lie right. the gentle lie the beautiful lie versus the truth and like what is the relative merit of each? And I think that has a lot to do with the book and the science fiction elements. Um, Because we're sort of given this story and I think in some ways it's, put it this way, I think Kurt Vonnegut could have written like the facts. He could have written his experience. Right. And (laughs) as celebrated and famous as this text is, I think there's a chance that that book would have been every bit as celebrated and famous and probably a little bit easier to consume, mm-hmm. like an easier movie to adapt for the screen. Right, it's possible right. that Kurt Vonnegut would be even more famous in a world where like, he wrote his first-person account of the war, right. and that was this book. Uh, but he doesn't do that. Instead, like you talked about, he introduces these science fiction elements that make it take it from being like a wartime story to something like incredibly unique. And I want to share a quote really, really quickly, um, because sentiment has changed for you and I. Here, you we're, read this. I'm gonna. I'm gonna, gonna fix your eye. Wash my eye, but I'll be able to hear you from the. Uh, <laughs> so Jacob is literally walking to the bathroom right now. He is. Jacob, do you wear contacts? You don't. No, I. Uh, I just get like eyelashes. I think I got loose, loose eyelashes. Listener, he's saying that he gets loose eyelashes and that he might have a loose eyelash in his eye at this very moment. He's currently pouring some kind of solution. I got from CVS. It's a solution he got at CVS. 
Soothing eyewash. It's a soothing eyewash that he got at CVS. He's pouring it into a small cup and presumably using it to splash into his eye. Now, listeners, he has closed the door of the bathroom. I can't entirely see what he's doing, but I do hear him chuckling, which suggests that he's not in a massive amount of pain. It also suggests that um, as I see him walking out now blinking, he might have he might have gotten rid of whatever that troublesome Hopefully. debris Hopefully was that was in his eye. It's possible, listeners, that he'll be he'll be getting up again. I'll definitely be doing that. Not this podcast, but that'll be something. It'll that's be a theme have, give it podcast, how long and I will continue to, to narrate it. Uh, yeah, that was good. That was good. <laughs> anyway. All right, anyway. Uh, um, So just talking about the world, what the world was like when Vonnegut wrote this novel. Not like the world at large, but more specifically the literary world. Uh, We live in a world where genre fiction, we we sort of live in the age of prestige genre fiction, I would say. I'm sure there's a think piece somewhere on like Vulture or TV, AV Club about that. For literature too. For literature, for TV, for movies, I think we we live in a world where it is uh, not only allowed but expect or allowed for but expected that great works of science fiction of uh you know you think about like murder mysteries that any genre can have um really incredible art come out of it yeah that there can be movies that are murder movies that win oscars right silence of the lambs so that's you know kind of old news uh but there could be TV shows that are science fiction TV shows that could be like spectacular works of art. Yeah. Many of the novels now, uh, especially, and this is all thanks to the postmodernists, really, mm. but the novels that win awards now are not just like straight novels, right? right. Like I'm looking right now, um, we have Midnight's Children on one of these shelves by Salman Rushdie, which won the Booker Prize and then it won the Booker of Bookers. And it's, that's very much like a postmodern novel in mm. the sense that he's using like a superhero story to tell the history of India, sort of. That's very reductive. But all that to say that that was not the case when Kurt Vonnegut started writing. Okay. When Kurt Vonnegut started writing, you were either like a very serious literary writer, capital L, yeah. or you were a genre writer. And there's a very funny quote from Kurt Vonnegut that I want to share. Yeah, please. Um, I'm going to actually share kind of like a paraphrased version here. Okay. Um, it talks about the distress of Kurt Vonnegut at a certain point. This is before writing his first novel. Uh, because he felt that science fiction was shoved in a drawer, which quote unquote, many serious critics regularly mistake for a urinal because the feeling persists that no one can simultaneously be a respectable writer and understand how a refrigerator works. (laughs) And so Kurt Vonnegut had some experience in, um, electronic manufacturing. I believe he was someone who knew a little bit about science and he was familiar with science fiction that came before him. Yeah. He talks about the influences of like Brave New World by Aldous Huxley and other like, uh, you know, titan works of, of science fiction. And so for Kurt Vonnegut to incorporate sci-fi into yeah. his war story, which is really in many ways, as he describes in the beginning of the novel, like sort of what he feels like is his life's work before that point. Like he feels like this is the story he has been given. He needs to turn this into like the money that will sustain him for the rest of his life. Like, this is going to be his masterpiece. He's been working on it for, you know, however many years. And he chooses science fiction to tell that story. He introduces this component that cannot be taken as literally real. And I personally have an immense amount of respect for that choice. But I'm curious what you got from it, why you think he's doing it, what your enjoyment was of the science fiction in the novel did you ever feel like 
ah, you know, it, it would be better without the sci-fi stuff or to have a little bit more that was just straight or, or what were your feelings toward like the science fictional elements of the That's novel in general? I think I'll start actually with your second bullet point on the question, which is why I think he did it. And this isn't, I have no idea, but this is just... I mean, you're famously a Vonnegut expert. <laughs> Vonnegut, yeah. <laughs> but this is... I saw it when I was reading it and applauded it while I was reading it as almost like a... All right, yeah, because it makes it clear in the first chapter that he has... This is, like you said, this is a story that he knows he has to write about. But it almost... I read the way he talked about it almost as like he doesn't really want to write. Like he's not super... In, he just knows like it's what he has to do. And to me, the choice to go off in this direction seemed like him trying to make the, the, the homework of him needing to write this book more interesting to him, <laughs> which I felt as a reader to some extent is like, I'm enjoying this more because of this crazy flavor that's added into it. Although there were parts that I, I did wonder, oh, maybe I would have enjoyed this more if they were more focused on the... But no, I think overall I enjoyed it more for the sci-fi angle, the weird sci-fi angle. To me, it just made it, again, as a member of this, 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 this generation where if we're genre, particularly sci-fi is, you know, really all sci-fi now, I feel like with the exception of the space operas are sort of, the expectation is that they need to be yeah, about like something really... Interrogate philosophical yeah, truths yeah, and stuff. Um, at least in movies and uh, TV. I haven't read much sci-fi literature, even, well, I took a class about it, so I guess I have, but I haven't read like, the you know, the most modern one I can think of is like Ender's Game, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's a pretty... Anyway. Um, but to think about... As a, as a modern sort of reader reading it, it just to me seems like, oh, this is really clever and a, a, a cool way to sort of stand out from the pack. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you, you describing what it was like back then makes it even crazier to think about and like more ballsy of a move on his part, obviously, just because... You know, it, it's, it is still weird to read now, but to me, I sort of am just like, cool. Like, it, it yeah. just feels like a cool twist that I feel like people do all the time now when they're trying to make their movie or their TV show or their, their book more, like the, the mixing genres and stuff like that. So it, it feels normal now, and, and, and maybe that's why I think I can sort of, I, 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 I can, yeah. I want to read you a quote from the novel that I think kind of gets at this idea a little bit. Um, it's when Billy's talking to Rosewater, this sort of like Harvard asshole in the hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Actually, sorry. He comes later. Rosewater is the one who introduces him to science fiction. Yeah, the Harvard guy. <laughs> it's like a Ram 4. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rosewater's right. Rosewater. Um, so he introduces I Billy. Like Rosewater. Rosewater he's a sweet, sweet guy. Yeah, yeah. I like he talks to his He talks to his mom. mom. He's like this right? sweet yeah. echo. I like, I love like Vonnegut's description. He talks about, he was experimenting yeah, with yeah, being yeah. like very positive. <laughs> he just like skewers, again, like these like types of people and phases sure, yeah, of life yeah, yeah. that I've been through. And he just, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, so Billy and Rosewater talk frequently about science fiction because they're reading these books by Kilgore Trout who hilariously has like, he's like a terrible writer that has like quote unquote good ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll talk to you a little bit about like some of the science Please, fiction yeah, no, ideas in the novel because trap, yeah. I think uh, in some ways Vonnegut is sort of like parodying yeah, sci yeah, science fiction totally. a little bit. Um, but it's like a very slight parody. It's yeah. anyway. Um, 
it says here, and I quote, Rosewater said an interesting thing to Billy one time about a book that wasn't science fiction. He said that everything there was to know about life was in The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. But that isn't enough anymore, said Rosewater. End quote. So for me, this quote kind of gets at the whole premise of postmodern literature, which is that in this world where, I mean, literally yesterday, we live in a world where 19 kids were just shot in an elementary school. That could have happened then too. But these were writers who were writing just after the Second World War, where human tragedy on a scale that had never happened before had happened multiple times. I mean, you talk about the Holocaust, um, which is not something that Vonnegut had immediately experienced, right? But then the bombing of Dresden, which killed more people than the atomic bomb. The atomic bomb. So many people are dying, and this level of tragedy, it seems sort of impossible to articulate to the writers of the day, and I think especially Kurt Vonnegut. And to approach something like that to try to capture like the horror by talking about it honestly or just describing it. There was a sense among these writers that that isn't, that really isn't enough. Like there's something that you're missing there to, to understand the horror. You have to get out of it in some way. You have to laugh at it. You have to get outside the text. You have to do all sorts of things. And so you see writers all through postmodernism, like trying different things to sort of like, talk about tragedy in a way that doesn't feel like horribly inauthentic or flat to like the way we actually experience it. And I think Vonnegut talking about, well, Vonnegut's use of science fiction is, is at least in part a means of addressing that. Like I can tell this fantastical story that like allows me, me the writer, but also Billy the character to make, some sense of what's going on to think about time as something yeah you know a world where maybe war is is inevitable but it's not something that like we have the power to stop to think about death is something that exists at one point in our yeah. lives but isn't the end and it's not written motivationally but just the fact like the idea of a character like trying to wrestle with these ideas to come to grips with experiencing tragedy and cruelty at a level that you and i can't understand um I think it sort of makes like the science fiction not only not only cool but like kind of necessary and I think it like you're saying it I think it sort of allowed Kurt Vonnegut to write the novel because I think there's yeah. a lot of hurt buried here that that you and I don't see. But I think it's also And what was the year this book came out? 1969. Right. So to think about you know, my, and I'm, you know, we're going to go a little uh, uh, intertextual. What is, what is 69, by the way. Nice. <laughs> with, um, with uh, you know, because I, like I said, I don't know much about, I don't know nothing about literature. Painting uh, yourself is like just this just, idiot. No, I know, I, you know. You're like, I didn't go to college. I didn't go to college. But I could, of course, I can relate this to what's going on in film and TV right now. But this is around... When sci-fi and that and those things not really got accepted like you were saying is now, but more so recognized as being I think something that could talk about really heavy stuff. And to me, what sci-fi really is right now and like to sort of an exhausting extent where it's just people use it to talk about things which are too dark to talk about 
in a real way, you know. Yeah. I mean? Just you know, yeah, it's like the, the Handmaid's great, Tale, right? It's the great Star Trek metaphor. is sort of like the opposite of that, where it's like a world exactly. Beyond. Yeah. So even space operas do that. Like even Star Wars, like Star Trek, has some some stuff going on. We're not going to go into that because honestly, yeah. but uh, like that, I think was starting in the '60s with stuff like you know the Twilight Zone doing that, like an episodic form, and that's obviously shaped sci-fi, particularly sci-fi TV, and everyone's trying to remake it basically in movies too, and like. Weird stuff like Planet of the Apes and talking about, you know, you know well, I don't want to spoil Planet of the Apes, but that's very much about sort of environmental collapse and humans ruining the planet. Oh, see, that's not what Joe Rogan said that it was about. Is that, so right, that's true. That's true. We shouldn't, we shouldn't. I got a very different political angle of... from Planet of the Apes based on what Joe Rogan I said. Mean, we're, and we're, we're, we're trying to dip our feet. There's an unsung, there's an unsaid rule in podcasts where you don't, you can't, you can't threaten. <laughs> don't come at the king. Don't come at the king you're... of Spotify. Um, you know, so, uh, maybe we'll cut, yeah, we'll cut this part out. We'll cut it. Yeah, we'll cut this out. But <laughs> it's true. His comments, yeah, very true. Um, all this to say, all of that creates an environment where I would expect this book, the sci-fi in this book, to be way more there to be way more of it than there actually is there's a weird thing going on where the sci-fi isn't explicitly about the war experience it's about this thing that comes after the war experience and yeah he's using it like you said to talk about something that's hard to talk about without genre but it's like this weird part that wasn't even that you i wasn't even necessarily expecting when i realized this was about what it was like i wasn't expecting it to be about the aftermath of not the war, but Billy's life yeah. after the war as much as it was. And yeah, I couldn't imagine what probably really happened, you made me realize, is he's like, okay, I want to write a, this story, but I want to spend a lot of time talking about what interests me most, which is what happens to this person after the war and how it affects this person. I don't know how I'm going to write about that, so I'm going to use the sci-fi for that, but not the war stuff. Like, not the. it's not about a World War II analog and and you know on Pluto or something like that or Trophimador you know yeah. the sci-fi stuff comes after that stuff which is the weird thing that separates it from all the sort of shoddy other sci-fi World War II uh, things you know out there where he, yeah. he has his cake and eats it too where he talks about the war and he talks about the war in, in very realistic terms <laughs> but at the same time he's making the sci-fi work and, and the sci-fi is working on the hard stuff um, if any of that makes sense so even for the 60s, that seems like an advanced... Well, something that you're getting at that I want to talk about is that... Yeah, right. Like, this is a science fiction novel, but it's not a science fiction novel where, like, like the world of Tralfamador is, like, a clever analog right, for like what's tra- going on. Like a Kilgore like, Trout. Right. Yeah, and so I want saying, to read yeah, a, yeah. the listeners a quote from uh, about a Kilgore Trout novel because we get, like, repeatedly sort of notes about different Kilgore Trout novels. Yeah. And to me, it shows, like, just how adept Kurt Vonnegut is at, like, just understanding tropes, understanding, like, what's good and what's bad, because I do think he's winking at us as he writes this stuff. (laughs) To me, all the Kilgore Trout novels kind of sounded like the worst Black Mirror episodes, where it feels like they have this really clever conceit, but it's, like, not that deep. And so this one, um, quote, Trout, incidentally, had written a had written a book about a money tree. It had $20 (laughs) bills for leaves. Its flowers were government bonds. Its fruit was diamonds. 
It attracted human beings who killed each other around the roots and made very good fertilizer. So it goes, unquote. So like, you get it. It's like, okay. We, it it's sounds like, like this Bergeron It's like a Twilight Zone yeah, thing. Yeah. Right. And it's not particularly clever. And I think the idea of Tralfamador is really interesting because it sort of, it does communicate some really, really interesting ideas. Yeah. And at the same time, the aesthetic of it is so influenced by hokey, pulpy sci-fi that um, there's like a ridiculousness to it that I think matches the world of the novel really well. That's really cool and something I always love in these sorts of things where, even though it's not a movie, but like aesthetically something really clashes with (laughs) the actual intelligence behind it. But it's interesting to think about that because... Six years ago or so, or the movie uh, Arrival, yes, which you saw, you've seen, right? Mm-hmm. Love it. Takes the Tralfamador, the thing that makes Tralfamador interesting, which is their. Pre- this is a huge spoiler. All right, then I'm not going to get too deep into it, but definitely, I can't stop now. So definitely, if you haven't seen Arrival, stop. Skip over the next 15 seconds. But it deals with time in a Tralfamador way. Where I, reading it, I was like, oh, this is where Arrival got it from. Yeah, and yet Arrival was still. A plot, and there's nothing wrong with that, but Arrival, it's clearly a great sci-fi idea that hasn't mm-hmm. been done to death because people loved it and thought it was the smartest thing ever. Mm-hmm. And reading this, I was like, oh man, he had this idea long before. So it makes me think it was crazy innovative back then. But the thing about Arrival, which is interesting too, is aesthetically, they aren't hokey at all. They put it off, do it in a very real mm-hmm. way that sort of matches the, 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 the metaphor in terms of... Um, Real's not the right word, but just sort of like, you know, it doesn't feel like there's the the humorous hokiness that you're talking about with Arrival. And Arrival, it's very, oh, you know, yeah, this is, you know, it all feels very consistent tonally. Yeah, um, and and I think the, you know, we're talking about comedy. I do, personally, I think this is a very funny book. I think Vonnegut is hilarious. I think he's every bit as funny as he wants to be. Like, when he writes something in here yeah. that's supposed to be funny, lands funny. for me. His descriptions yeah. of things, funny. I think the comedy is essential. I think it's, I mean, it's very postmodern in the sense that he's trying to, again, talk about these very dark things, and it feels like without, I mean, what's that, like, horribly, uh, horribly cliche quote where it's like, well, you either gotta laugh or cry, I choose to laugh. And it feels like that's kind of um, what's going on here. And I think that does seep into the Tralfamadorian aesthetic where it's like, okay, these guys are plungers. They (laughs) speak with their minds through like electromagnetic rays or whatever. They have one eye on the palm of their hand. (laughs) They fly just flying saucers. There's no attempt to like explain the physics, the air on their planet, cyanide. And (laughs) they have them in this like little dome. Like it's, it's so, it pays a lot of tribute, I think to pulpy sci-fi aesthetically um which i think is kind of uh i think it's intentional and kind of true to the essential nature of comedy in the novel especially because yeah yeah but maybe hopefully an appreciation for it too for the pulpy sci-fi stuff too. i think so if it is this thing of sort of you know the pulpy stuff being in the urinal you know what I mean yeah just like that's what sort of sci-fi literature was I think mostly back then was seen as just sort of these little cheap pulp magazine stuff and so to imagine taking 
stuff from that and sewing it in with this book is, is it makes it even more impressive to me just to think that he embraced it like that but I guess it could be seen as, as only parody. But. No, I, I don't think... I mean, I think he's parodying a certain type of writer. Right. But it feels like the type of parody of someone who's very familiar with it. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like... Yeah, yeah. It feels like... And I think to sew it in and put it on the same level as the war stories <laughs> in, like, his life's work... Yeah. I, I think exactly like you're saying. Like, he's platforming sci-fi. We right. would say platforming today. Like, he's putting it on the same level... He's saying, you know, these things are equivalent. I'm presenting right. you with all of these events and it's all important. And yeah. I think, like you're saying, like, I, I really do feel like he, he sort of championed sci-fi with this novel. And he was always like a champion of sci-fi. And I think sure. we sort of have Kurt Vonnegut to thank for like how sci-fi is viewed today. Um, and also really for how we think about novels today. They're like less stuffy, frankly, thanks to Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> I don't think they're like ever really as funny as uh you know like the times reviews would have you believe like yeah it always says deeply funny deeply right, funny right, and it's always like just these like very yeah, sad yeah, thing yeah, yeah. but uh yeah i think he was a talented enough writer and had innovative enough ideas that he sort of could be funny and he could incorporate sci-fi yeah and his work was sort of so essential his voice was so important that uh you people listened anyway, which I yeah. think like the literary community, I think with my little understanding has a colossal debt to Kurt Vonnegut. And I also think just media in general does as well. I'd buy that, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I don't think I read it and said like, Oh, this is, you know, this is where this comes from. No, <laughs> you know what no, I mean? no. Yeah. You'd have, you had to spell that out for me to, for me to be persuaded of it. But, um, that's yeah. Again, I don't. I don't know nothing about. It. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I certainly don't know much about the history of how literature influences the literature after it. But uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, before we go any further, are there any scenes that you really want to talk about? The last scene. There's two more scenes. One, which is we're going to get into a little later just because it, it has to do with the structure of the podcast. <laughs> One that might not come back is <laughs> maybe the scene that made me laugh. And I never laughed out loud during this book, uh, to be honest, but made me laugh internally the most, but in like a scared sort of way. The one, is it Lazarus or Laszlo, the guy who... Oh, with the dog thing? Yeah, uh, that yes, guy. Yes, like, that guy. Not that particular guy. story, but <laughs> him... He had a weary, not weary, like a weary ass yeah. thing of just like, I know this fucking asshole. Not someone who would go so far as to kill people, but who like makes these threats and like doesn't he, he chill was out. hilarious to me. And him yeah. being like, yeah, you better be careful who you, like it could be in 20 years, but watch out who, when you open the door, get your wife to do it or something. Just the way he spoke was just in this like really hyper-masculine, like, yeah. I never forget, you know what yeah. I mean? You never cross me or my friends who I just met on the train coming here who you killed, you know, and mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I'm going to kill It just was so ridiculous. And so and then the, the British soldier apologizes to him yeah. and he's like, I'm going to, when I'm fine, I'm going to kill you. And then the British soldier laughs at him. Yeah. And that I think was the establishment of like, oh, this is kind of a joke, you know? Yeah. Because it is dark. And I didn't like when he describes killing No, the dog, dog it was, it was so... really brutal. See, that was... Uh... He's in the word masterful a lot, but there was something masterful in those pages because 
I thought in describing brutally just how this this pathetic guy kills this dog for no reason. I mean, for you know, he's pissed off by the dog, but he doesn't have a reason. He he like brutally murders this dog. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, I I feel like this is about as much as I've hated anyone in this book. Like I, yeah. I really was disgusted, no, and it was too. it was um, it was just gross and and vile. And I remember sort of having the conscious thought, like I I don't think I'm ever gonna like this guy at all. <laughs> and then within pages, um, of course, he's like kind of played for comedy. And then it talks about how ah I I, I could find the line somewhere, but basically, sort of cavalierly Vonnegut says oh man I can't even remember the guy's name it's, start, it's like it's which guy Pizzolatto is oh, what I'm guy. hearing yeah, even yeah, though yeah, it's no. like that's it's, the true it's detective L-A-Z. guy yeah it's like it's, it's kind of a hard to read name it's one of those names I sort of like see the shape of and it's, skip it's over it's thing Pizzolatto I thought it was Lazarus Laszlo yeah well we'll call him Laszlo I know that's not his name but um Laszlo whatever he uh it talks about when the bombs came down over Dresden mm. that Laszlo, like he wasn't glad that those people died, and he they, he gives him a line and he says something like that, like, you know, oh, yeah, all the people that Laszlo ever gave Laszlo never gave it to someone that didn't have it coming right, to him, right, right. and so to, even though this character, <laughs> even, even this character is given this moment to sort of like show empathy and sadness, and I think really all the characters in this book that are that are given some page time i don't think any of them are presented as uh unredeemable and i i, I don't know that there's any like i, I didn't feel any ill will mm. toward the writer or the narrator toward really anyone in the book it kind of felt like they were all just products of their environment they really didn't seem to have a choice in any of this they were the way that they were and then many of them die, so it goes. And, uh, you know, at one point, Billy asked the Tralfamadorians, I think, oh, so you, it seems like you people don't believe in free will. Oh, and they yeah. say, you know, we've analyzed like 33 planets in this the universe. This is the only yeah. one where anyone talks about free will. And uh, I did, like, you know, reading the book, I think I sort of uh, started to view characters in that way. It's like, uh, you know, they, they really didn't have much of a say in any of this. They were just yeah. here for a couple seconds and did their thing. and. There was good and there was bad and that was it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. I think I mostly agree with that. I think... I think it's less of a... I, I read it as less of a character study as I think you wound up doing where it just felt like the only character I really sort of... Despite what I said about Wary at the beginning and all this stuff, it just felt like sort of the Billy show, which it is for most of it. And then it's impressive how the mileage he gets with that, like how much he's able to describe mm. other characters, particularly Weary and, and, and this last guy. Blue-haired fairy godmother. <laughs> gets a little bit of screen <laughs> the time. The whole Cinderella play, too, is great. Like all these, I'm all, I was always like, oh, this is cool. But um, it, for sure, like it, 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 there were those pockets of like, wow, he, he really just fleshed this guy out and dressed him down in over the course of a couple paragraphs and that's commend that's really cool that's impressive and yet at the same time it felt like a very almost like a journalistic like mm. this is this guy this is his job and this is blah 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 you yeah. know that's not how it was written but those were sort of the it felt like these 
minute brushes with so no, many they're not like people. Deep portraits. Yeah, deep. Yeah, no, not at all. But like, I don't think even deep enough that like I do remember that quote. I still found like I was still like ah oh, this like yeah, 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 yeah. good like yeah because he has some basic humanity <laughs> you know what I mean yeah I think less all the characters were redeemable more they all felt like incredibly non-fiction like incredibly human yeah so redeemable to that extent of just like oh these none of these like they just and pathetic <laughs> yeah I mean I guess <laughs> I think I, we're saying it's similar I think we just, are I think I, I guess I think that in reading the book I started to look at you know, I'm not going to say that, like, it changed my outlook on life or anything like that. I think every, all the media we consume no. does in some way. And this one but actually like, did for me a bit. Well, yeah. when you reading the book, it's this is like a tangent, but um, after work um, on the day that I finished the book, I there's, like, sort of a guy in my office that, like, yeah. frankly, like, frustrates me a little bit and in, yeah. in, in some ways reminds me of, like, some of the characters in the novel, in the sense of, like, not, not being very self-aware, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, he's someone that, like, I think always, uh, you know, would be down to spend more time with me, and I'm kind of putting that off. Yeah. And after finishing this novel... Sort of a Three Musketeers. Sort of a Three Musketeers. <laughs> I, uh, like, went out of my way to talk to him, and, uh... I don't want to get into like too much more detail. It went a little more than just like talking, you know, oh, talking to him. Story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it was nothing crazy, but just like I felt sort of compassion for him and kind of felt like, you know what, maybe I do view you as a little bit pathetic, but after reading this book, yeah, I'm also pathetic and we're right. kind of all like all we can ever really do is like try our best with the people like immediately around us and the book doesn't explicitly say any of that, but just in describing people as so pathetic and yet so, I don't know, I guess just really just pathetic, but also not necessarily trying to be, uh, yeah, I don't know. It just kind of did give me a little bit of, I think what Vonnegut's humanistic outlook is about just kind of like believing in the good of humanity or trying to focusing on the good moments, um, not attributing evil where there is none, but acknowledging the darkness in the world, that sort of thing. And I also read it too, as like, to your, to your point, like sort of a a critique of just sort of like egos and like Mm. how you can, what's going on in your head. You can think you're the most important person in the world, but like (laughs) I read it, I was like, I didn't think, Billy Pilgrim was some like some genius who no. who got to got it to get away with everything he did because he was like the chosen one. It wasn't yeah. one of those situations. And I always I like to classify a lot of different sort of forms of maybe we'll incorporate this in later episodes. But like art and media, I like to sort of, there's like a binary for me of like if it feels like there's an ego to it or, or not an ego to it. And this to me is a book as opposed to certain novels where. The book, I mean, the book feels like it doesn't have an ego, which is a ridiculous thing to say, but particularly the author. <laughs> like, I didn't leave it. I, le- I left it thinking this guy is incredibly humble, just the writer of this, which is obviously not true because, you know, I think <laughs> every artist needs some sort yeah. of ego. But um, you think about something like The Godfather, like, 
like that's a movie to me which was made with a huge ego behind right. it which isn't necessarily a statement of quality right? no like, it's just amazing a vibe things have I been made with ego and no ego right and it just always informs how I approach them like I've loved things with it. the best the way I came across this was just thinking about comedians particularly mm. and that's more of a thing where the art is inextricably totally. linked with the performer but it's like Jerry Seinfeld is totally has an ego yeah, and that's part of his 100%. charm. Dave Chappelle totally has an ego, and that's part of his charm. Chris Rock doesn't really have much of an ego. Louis C.K. has no, no ego, ego. <laughs> especially worse. not now. Bill Burr, I'm weirdly split Bill Burr, on. I think Bill Burr doesn't have an ego. Anyway, okay. this is a fun. It's yeah. a fun game I like to play, but that's the one that's the easiest to talk about because the truth is they all have egos. Mm-hmm. Definitely, <laughs> yeah, I like it. it <laughs> but it, this it, book, it is a book without ego. This book is a book without ego. Book it's because a, it's it, like a criticism of ego. It's a criticism of ego, and also just the way it's written and the way it talks about people and humans, and just sort of it has this sort of very the sensibility towards it of just like we're all just on the same playing field and nobody's more special than the other person, no matter what they've done in the war or what they think is going you know. Oh, you're reminding me, uh, there's a quote I want to read that was apparently very influential in, in Kurt Vonnegut's life. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I don't know if you've read this, but it really no, just, uh, it, it kind of like touched <laughs> me as I was reading it. And it's exactly aligned uh, with what, with what you were just saying. So, oh, that's exciting. Um, let me just... It's not from the book. No, it's not from the book. Oh, it, okay. It's a yeah, quote no, someone I else said it. that I think uh, Vonnegut is described as having found very influential. And he, he often quoted it. Yeah. Um, so I guess this is a quote from Eugene V. Debs, and, uh, a, a socialist. It says, As long as there is a lower class, I am in it. As long as there is a criminal element, I am of it. As long as there is a soul in prison, I am not free. And I think you do read this book and feel like yeah, yeah. Kurt Vonnegut believes himself and yeah. all of us to be like shit on God's heel. Yeah. Exactly. And he does think it's a little bit funny. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, I'm so curious to know what scene we're going to talk about that has something to do with the rating <laughs> system of this podcast. Okay. But oh, yeah, before yeah. we get there, I want to close out with, um, I had a million quotes marked. Uh, we didn't get to talk about all of them. Yeah. I don't actually think it's important. I feel like we've had like... How long has this been? Uh... Yeah. Oh, we've, okay. well, we've, this, had a, we've had a pretty good talk a about the plot. Yet, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I think ranking actually will yeah, be like yeah. somewhat of a discussion. Yeah, so yeah, I want to leave time for that. But I just want to uh, talk about I briefly read the description of the Tralfamadorian novel, yeah. which I think is in many ways Kurt Vonnegut sort of giving us a description of, of what this novel is doing. And I yeah. do personally believe that it succeeds in doing this. Uh, I think structurally it's not dissimilar to what he's describing here. And uh, I think it kind of speaks a little bit to maybe what his aims were <laughs> as he set out to uh, describe this book. Perfect. So it says... Well, basically, Billy picks up these novels, and they're very thin, yeah, and they have clumps right. of sti- symbols, and he's asking, and he says, wait, is this One like a symbol. telegram? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And um, they're like, well, it's kind of like a telegram. We don't have telegrams. But anyway, they say, each clump of symbols is a brief, urgent message describing mm-hmm. a situation, a scene. We Trophamadorians read them all at once, not one after the other. There isn't any particular relationship between all the messages, except that the author has chosen them carefully. So that, when seen all at once, they produce an image of life that is beautiful and surprising and deep. There is no beginning, 
no middle, no end, no suspense, no moral, no causes, no effects. What we love in our books are the depths of many marvelous moments seen all at one time, end quote. Yeah. And I don't know, to me, that is Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, there really is not a beginning to the book in a traditional sense. There's not an end. What we get are a collection of moments that do feel like they were very carefully chosen yeah. to communicate something to us about the human condition that would be impossible to communicate right, right, through right. any other means. Yeah, and no. I, I, I kind of think that's what he was trying to do here. And, uh, you know, personally, I think he succeeds. I like the book quite a lot. So anyway, I will leave it to you to carry us into the ranking section and maybe talk a little bit about this. I'm so curious to know what passage or, or uh, what, you're, well, what we're dealing with Well, I wanted here. to talk about the uh, <laughs> fun, the Chris Velody of the book. The cr- <laughs> okay. Which to me... Is oh, it weary? No. You? No. Wait, are we doing... Is your Chris Maloney a character? Yes, yes, yeah. Oh, jeez. Okay. Do you want to guess? I, I honestly don't think you'll be able to guess because it's not as crazy of an answer. As... But it has to do with a scene in the book. Well, I'm just going to back it up with one scene in particular, which I, I think is when this character shines. All right. Let me think about my Chris Maloney. Yeah. Oh, jeez. I'm what? trying to think about any other things we've established. Um, I think Chris Maloney's the only one. Ah, shit, man. Like, I... It's so hard for... Hi. Uh, all right, you go, and I'll have mine um, at the end. All right, my Maloney is Kilgore Trout. Okay. And, uh, and now oh, I'm remembering another one. scene, which because apart from what we've already talked about and the great scene, the scenes of describing his books and stuff, um, the scene where he runs into him, like shaking down these kids, like you know, what I forget what he's like trying to get them to sell his newspapers or something like that. It's just such a weird scene where he's, like, trying to con these kids. It's just so unflattering. I thought it was really funny. And then he comes up to him and he's like, I'm your big fan. I'm a fan. Are you Kilgore Trout, the writer? And he's like, eh, it's this weird dialogue. And then when he brings them over for to the, the party. <laughs> yeah. the party. And he's eating, like, salmon and, and, and um, cream cheese and... Uh, um, Roe. Salmon, yeah, salmon yeah, roe. Salmon roe. Or whatever. Then, with a yeah, um, and he's like what, um, maybe whatever. hitting on like that yeah, potty at the party. He's spitting like, on her her breasts. Uh huh. It's just this description that's really unflattering of him with this beard, <laughs> and he's like chewing with his. He's and eating, she, talking with his mouth open. She chewing. thinks he's like a real writer. Right. So everyone like, is wrapped. wrapped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was really that may have been my favorite individual scene. We, we also get one of the funnier moments of sexism in the book where I believe Vonnegut describes the woman that killed... Okay, I, I, it's difficult to tell whether he's hitting on her. I like to believe he's sort of not, and he's just kind of spouting to Yeah, I think he's just listen. so excited to have this uh-huh. attention. <laughs> but uh, he describes her, I think, as sort of a dull person, but a fantastic invitation to make babies. Right! I forgot about that. Okay, yeah, Which, that's yeah, it's, it's a little rough, um, but... Clever, which, uh, you know, Vonnegut is nothing if he's not clever. Okay, that was fantastic. That's I actually fine. think that's going to that's gonna, that's gonna blow mine out of the water. You got to do um, it. 
Yeah, I mean, I love trout, but I'll, I'll give the listener. There was there was a passage I I, I wanted to get to maybe. Um, it's it's like a very different kind of bystander in the sense that I don't think he stole steen he stole scenes um, by making me laugh very hard. But ultimately, I liked the payoff. Oh, I'm going to talk briefly about um, Derby. He's like the older man in their outfit. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, who's yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. the the most mature oh, one there. The teacher. He has a wife and kids. He's a teacher and. Um, there was something touching about his character to me. Um, he's sort of, I think there are a lot of like half Christ figures in this novel. Billy very explicitly is kind of like a parody of a Christ figure almost, I think about. Mm. But Campbell, uh, he, he, he gets the closest, I think. There's a scene where the British sort of force these Americans and they're like exhausted and like half sleeping to have an election where they like choose a leader <laughs> and none of them want to participate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you guys got to pay attention. And um, he's like, any nominations? And no one nominates anyone. And then the British guy's like, all right, you, Derby. Yeah. Because he knows that Derby was at least like, you know, could hold a conversation and stuff. So he gets up there. And they're like, anyone else? And no one else nominates anyone. And then they're like, okay, all in favor of Derby, say aye. And like two people, it says, say aye. And then they ask him to give a speech, and he does. And it's like sort of this humble speech where he's like, yeah, I I think we're going to, you know, we're going to do this. And it's like idiotic, but also it seems well-intentioned. And um, you think he's never going to get a chance to really be a leader in the way he's elected to, because we know from the moment we meet him that he's famously like shot way after the bombing of Dresden, they're like free, they're digging up, um, they're not free all the way, I guess, but they're digging up bodies mm. in like the rubble of the city. Mm, yeah. um, the oh, Russians are getting them to do it. This, yeah. And we're constantly told that he meets death by firing squad, but like really right. the sad thing, and I, I do believe he's like a real character, sort of. Uh, the sad thing is, you know, they've made it through the war, essentially. And the Russians find out that I think he took a teapot or something from the ground. And so right. they, oh, they kill him in man. a line. And the whole time this he's writing letters there, to right? his... Uh, he, he's writing letters in his mind to his wife. And he's got... It, it feels right. like he has a life to get back to and he never does. But there's one moment toward the end. Um, it's when whatever that guy's name, Campbell comes and he's in this ridiculous nazi outfit and he basically says you want to come have a hot meal like you can come be nazis with me and the men don't take him up on it but no one stands up to him um it says and then it developed that campbell was not going to go unanswered after all poor old derby the doomed (laughs) high school teacher lumbered to his feet for what was probably the finest moment in his (laughs) life There are almost no characters in this story and almost no dramatic confrontations because most of the people in it are so sick and so much the listless playthings of enormous forces. One of the main effects of war, after all, is that people are discouraged from being characters. But old Derby was a character now. His stance was that of a punch-drunk fighter. His head was down. His fists were out front waiting for information and battle plan. Derby raised his head, called Campbell a snake. He corrected that. He said that snakes couldn't help right. being snakes and that Campbell, who could help being what he was, was something much lower than a snake or a rat or even a blood-filled tick. And nothing happens, really. Yeah, no, You know, he, he keeps going on, but I just... The idea that this man gets a moment to stand up for something and that there's, like, a beauty in that and that Vonnegut chose to highlight it for a moment and... Uh, for me, there was kind of something potent in describing it as probably the finest moment of his life because, you know, we probably never will know what the finest moment of our lives are as we're living them. But the idea that uh, 
this really kind of like low confrontation was the most heroic thing. This I, I don't know. There was something kind of touching and totally. uh, ineffable about it. So I'll say Derby was my. Uh, I'll give him my no, Christopher that's, Malone. That's that's a great scene. I forgot about that. And that is one of the, that I, I loved that scene when I was reading it. I'd argue, if I may, that <laughs> Kilgore is more of a Christopher Maloney. And uh, Derby's more of like a camp director, just in terms of coming in at the moment. I think you're 100% you know? right. I do think Kilgore is the, more of a Maloney. We're not going to add another. But, but, well, but you're right, though, because Kilgore, he comes in, like he steals the scene that he's in. Right. And it's at a pivotal point the in the novel, novel. whereas Derby's <laughs> in a lot of the novel. Derby's in a lot, and he has this one great... I mean, Toward the uh, end, he gets like this moment to make something really happen that's magic. He is more of a camp director, listeners. It's a likable moment, whereas I don't know if a Christopher Maloney. Well, I love has Christopher Maloney, but he's you're right. He doesn't have movie, to be likable. Just for future reference. Yeah. Anyway, we'll 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 we'll, we'll polish up these rules <laughs> as time goes on. All right. I don't know if we have. I mean, we. I don't remember when we do a numeric ranking, or we give it a. Before grade. we get to numeric ranking, I'm but curious. Do you think this book is a? I mean, to me, there's like an obvious answer, but do you think this book is a bastard, a coward, or a fool? Ooh, I like this being because we know that it's no ego. No On the ego, ego okay, no great, ego binary, right, ego it's no ego. Be, bastard, right. coward, fool. Oh, coward. I guess I, I, it's it's going to be hard to. We haven't done this with yeah. actual. I also was going to say coward, but it's all—it's not a cowardly book. You no, no, mean? but I do feel like it made me more of a coward. Like it's the first time I've thought about like defecting and like running to the other side yeah. of war as yeah, like yeah, sort yeah. of being an honorable choice. So I guess it's coward. I, and it's all the characters fool. are cowards. Right. That's that's why I was thinking. It's too. I think it is too it's, smart to be fool. It could either be coward or bastard. Bastard is like bastard, the forces involved in it, maybe. But like, right. And bastard calling a bastard contradicts. The fact that it has no ego. And it has no you know villains. I mean? Right. Like, I'd call it a bastard because just because it's a, 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 a celebrated book. Godfather's a bastard. Godfather's such a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I do uh, think Slaughterhouse-Five, a fool. Slaughterhouse-Five, no, coward. Oh, uh, sorry, it's, it's coward. a coward. Hurricane of Fun is a fool. Hurricane of Fun is the a fool. Twilight Imperium is a bastard. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a like bastard Gale, and a bitch like to Gale. play, yeah. Um, um, that's great, we'll have to... I we'll have that. to continue that, yeah. I also uh, think that we should probably begin... Um, I'm sure this will just come naturally, but as we talk about character deaths in future episodes, I do imagine deaths? that... Character deaths, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that we will probably want to adopt the Charles Amadorian custom of... So giving giving them a so it goes. I was oh, I was intending to pepper in way more so it goes in this conversation then, but I guess me too. But be we haven't talked about the deaths. I guess we have. We I just talked about Derby's deaths. Maybe it's a little too on the nose so to goes. talk yeah. about deaths in the book. So it goes. Did did Trout die? Kilgore died. I don't though. think we see his death. I think the last scene is the scene where he's at the party. Yeah, Hollywooding it up with all. The I think <laughs> the only, we get mention of him after when. Uh, Billy's at like the porno store and he's like very interested in the trout novels. Right, and the guy And the guy's like, no, we got good stuff in the back. <laughs> and so he just takes the novel takes from the display the into the back. Right. And, and they're all weirded out and start calling him a pervert. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's so many weird scenes. I will say I there's something kind of uh, sort of feminist in the book, if you want to call it that, where like he sees what he calls like the blue scenes of Mon- like the porn basically the Montana wild hack shot when wow, she was young was and he's in the dome with her later yeah. and uh, he kind of talks about it with her and she says yeah and she there's no remorse Vonnegut describes her as like not regretting anything having no shame and she says you've seen that and I've seen you 
being a ridiculous coward in the war and like shitting yourself and this and that and the way they're talking there's no human sense of like embarrassment it does feel like like the Trophimidorians which is what Vonnegut says they're kind of just seeing things and they yeah. as they are and choosing to focus on the good in that um which I thought was you know a little bit feminist but also just a beautiful message also also I just don't want to let it go unmentioned that uh, Billy Pig- Pilgrim canonically has a tremendous wang and quote unquote you never know who will get one <laughs> Do you remember this? No, I don't remember. It's uh, yeah, it, it, it's like the end of one of these little micro chapters. Yeah. It says, uh, coinc- uh, like incidentally, Billy had a tremendous wang. Period. You never know who will get what? one. Yes, he uses wang. Yes, <laughs> I do not remember this at all. It's like I think after uh, when he and Montana are like sex. getting yeah yeah yeah. I don't remember that at all. You'd think I would be paying attention to it. <laughs> anyway. Um, um, so, yeah, lots of scenes. Talk to me broadly about your experience with the book. What did you think of it? I liked it. I think, I think the main thing that's going to knock it down some pegs for me or keep it from uh, um, ascending certain pegs is just that I, it, is, it is in my kind of book. Um, and I think that's such a lame excuse for a lot of things, but it's one we're really only going to come across honestly with books, I think, and, and maybe board games and stuff that takes time. You yeah. know what I mean? Anything that takes longer than two hours or three <laughs> hours, my, th- my tolerance for things that aren't in my wheelhouse is yeah. so much lower. Like, cause I can watch movies and TV. I mean, I guess if we're doing seasons of TV, you know, doing a season of Is It Cake or something is going to be really hard. And this is obviously way more tolerable to me than Is It Cake. Yeah. But, like, it's going to be something we're going to have to navigate. And we kind of did with Twilight Imperium, but also I think Twilight Imperium is more me than this book is me in terms of just what it is about. Yeah. You know, I think books are more me than board games. But the type of game Twilight Imperium was is more my type than the type of book <laughs> this book is, if that's making any sense. No, I, I think it totally makes sense. <laughs> and when you talk about it not being your type of book, what which I think is totally fair, yeah, is it like tonally? Do you feel like, uh, I mean, clearly like it's not, it, it's like a literary novel. Yeah. It's not plot driven. Well, I think... Which isn't to say that you can't, like, appreciate a literary no, novel. No, I'm just saying, no, like, it's not... I can see what it's not something that someone would pick up yeah, and just, like, the literary, read yeah, to yeah, be, yeah. like, entertained or even, like... Right. I, I don't know. I think it's entertaining, but it's not... It's it's doing other things. So. I think it was just... I think it was just a cruel book and just... It's just very dark and... Yeah. I didn't find there to be a lot of moments of... I did find there to be moments of levity, but none that really took the pressure out in the way I like, I think. Yeah. In the way I imagine something like uh, the book uh, uh, we were just talking about, the war book. Come on. Uh, I can't believe Catch-22. Oh, like, it's funnier. It's, yeah, I well, think that... yeah, that I mean, it's, maybe it's less I would, bleak. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I'm sure it's less bleak because that... Anyway, it's not about this, but I think... I'm not a huge war story type person. Yeah. Like, I could never really imagine reading a book that was... Yeah, I guess me neither. ...about war. And sci-fi, contrary to what I, uh, popular belief, popular being people who know me... You don't like it? I'm, I do like sci-fi, and I, I appreciate it, but in the, like, genre world, the 
sci-fi is lower on the ranking for me, and the sci-fi I tend to gravitate towards more as just being like, I bet I'm going to like this, is the much pulpier space operatic stuff as opposed to the quote-unquote smarter more um, do you like fantasy more than sci-fi i do interesting i've had way more exposure to sci-fi but the idea of fantasy somehow i think there's there's a there's been sort of a super saturation of sci-fi that's been a little exhausting to me as a viewer lately that makes me just feel like everyone and their mother's trying to do sci-fi and fantasy is just a little rarer and you know, I really have not much exposure. I've read The Hobbit, and I've seen a couple of fantasy movies. Right. But those worlds always grip me a little more because I just think I see less of them. And um, the sci-fi that grips me is the ones that also sort of parallel fantasy stuff, too, with lightsabers instead of swords and, you know, totally. space creatures instead of dragons. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Just for this... The sci-fi that I think it did better was the intellectual sci-fi, even though it is borrowing from the pulpy mm-hmm. sci-fi, superficially. Um, so while I did appreciate that pulpiness, the major sci-fi at play was the kind of sci-fi that I don't always love and can respect. Yeah. I respect more than I like. And so it just was this cocktail that I didn't, uh, that I really, again, it's a book I respect more than I, I like. liked, and I'm glad yeah. I read it. And I liked it more than I thought I would because they do this weird stuff with sci-fi. Yeah. But um, it wasn't a perfect storm for me, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, neither is the stuff I'm going to rank higher than this or the thing I'm going to rank higher than this. But it's shorter and took less of my time. <laughs> and we'll get into that. But there's, you know, there's an argument <laughs> that I'll, I'll use again, which right. I used and last you're, week. You're talking about Twilight anyway. Imperium. <laughs> Right, Twilight Imperium is not only better than this, but since our recording of the last podcast has it's been gotten, spot, <laughs> has spot, has surmounted. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what about you? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, numerically ranking it feels weird. Well, uh, yeah, we can hold up, but I just want to know. Yeah, what yeah, yeah. Right my my thoughts. Um, so this is the kind of thing I like. Really? Um, yeah. That's really interesting to me. It's not in, in not in literature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But just from a standpoint of like the postmodernism. Yeah, he's just like okay. the kind of writer that I like to read. Um, like, and for me, it's less stuff? about yeah. It's a, it's less about that. I don't read a lot of sci-fi. Yeah. I, I I would say um, this is going to sound uh, more pretentious than I would like it to. Nah, so like, just no, bear with me a little bit. But I don't. Um, I almost never. I, I can't remember the last time I picked up a book to read because I thought that, like, the story sounded interesting. <laughs> I generally like, um, like, I gravitate toward writers whose work yeah. I've read and that I like um, or that I've heard, like, inspired other things. And I feel like I've been uh, surprised enough by things that I've read that I would never have pulled off a shelf. Um, <laughs> yeah. I read more short stories than novels, which I think, like, yeah. probably, like, plays a role in that. Because a short story, like, you're not committing to a whole novel of something. You, uh, you know, you just sit down and you can kind of read it in one to two sittings. And uh, it could be about anything. And you get a whole short story collection and you yeah. just kind of go through and, you know, get surprised by what it is. All that to say, um, this is the kind of book I like because I think, like, Vonnegut is the kind of uh, writer that I that like to read. more sense. Yeah, I would he's, uh, yeah, yeah. he's, he, to me, I find him very funny. I think, like, the what he's concerned about or, or what he's trying to tackle through his work 
is uh it, it feels like important to me still it feels like very timely it doesn't feel dated at all even though like the subject matter is really dated i feel like uh these are very live questions at like the center of this it feels very very important um i've talked a little bit about the legacy of the book which i think uh is important but then also i just uh yeah i think like the questions at the heart of this thing are things that we're still still dealing with i think there's a he's talking to a psychiatrist later in the book where uh Maybe it's not later in the book. Chronology's hard. No, but um, it might be weird. It it might be one of the not weary. It might be one of the people he's staying in a room with. But I think they like send him a psychologist or someone, and the Mm -hmm. guy says, you know, if if you want people to stop killing themselves, this is a paraphrase. You're gonna need to start coming up with some better lies. Mm. And uh, I do think that you know when I read that line, it, it felt like something that resonated to. Not only like where I'm at now, but just like where the world is at, yeah. it feels like to me like where everything is so bleak and dark and uh, kind of feels like there's not a way out. So I guess um, all that to say, really like Vonnegut as a writer. Yeah. Um, less concerned about like what the story is, although sure. I found it to be like something only he could do and thus very interesting. And then I think um, sort of very just like important and uh, more more applicable to life as I'm living it than I might have expected going into it. Because like I said, I hadn't read it. um, And it could very easily be something that I was like disappointed by because it is one of those classic American novels that, you know, even gets assigned in high school sometimes. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes, yeah. And it's it's an interesting insight into your, uh, you as a a reader. My my psyche, yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people would agree with you, but it is in some ways diametrically opposed to how I come at literature too which is just which is why we are uniquely qualified to rank right. all media in existence yeah, we yeah, have yeah, the yeah. two we're, perfect per- we're still distillations for of why, perspectives yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so yeah. hurricane of fun um <laughs> yeah okay let's refresh the order because uh, so listeners from bottom to top from bottom to top and number three the worst piece of media ever created is hurricane of fun yeah, Rice? What was her? Amy Rice's, Amy Rice's, Amy Rice's Hurricane of Fun. In second place, we have Twilight Imperium 4th Edition, a game by Christian T. Peterson. Glad you remembered, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. I was going to allow you to uh, do the honors of saying of number what's, one. In, yeah, what's in first place. Uh, in first place, we have The Godfather Part 1 uh, by Francis Ford Coppola. And now we have uh, Slaughterhouse-Five to... To slip in somewhere by Carvajal. Um, so far, we've, we've created this list with mostly no. Uh, well, no we had a bit of a debate last time, but it, yeah, but it was revealed towards the end that at least Cole wasn't wasn't entirely convinced of the arguments. Yeah, I never would have yeah, put yeah. Twilight and I'm not so above sure, the Godfather. I don't need to add shit to the heap you guys, you listeners, are. Are, are, are making about Galen's opinions. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, man. They hate Galen. I just get a little... I get annoyed with I feel like we can be, like, more open about it toward the end because people probably... Yeah, I don't know that they well, get this Well, but far. also, like, we just... Come on. Yeah, you just know, stop. I mean, be nice. I, he's know? our friend, and yeah, I just... I, don't know. I was way madder about it earlier in this whole thing. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, was, it was at its worst a few weeks ago when the episode dropped. So. Yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> so, I. You know, do we need to numerically rank it? Is that. Like, in. What do you mean? Like, like do we need rate? to assign our numerical rankings? Is that something like, that we want out of to continue? 100, you mean? Yeah. Because yeah, I, I think it's interesting, but I don't know if we need to do it right now because it kind of gives. It know, doesn't give it away. It. I don't know. I don't know what I rank the other shit, to be honest. Do and I, I could rank it totally different numbers on a given I mean, day. Should, we should really do out of 10. Yeah, I, I mean, out of 100 is the same. No, but except there's so much Oh, more. I see, yeah. It's easier to remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know loosely where I play stuff. I know it was like 66-ish for uh, Hurricane of Fun. And the Twilight Imperium was a 90, I think. And Godfather was also a 90. Okay, I remember. It was a 90 for you. What? Twilight Imperium was a 90 for you. Yeah, looking this back. Not looking back. <laughs> looking back, I do think it would probably be lower. A little lower? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'm, I, I don't... You don't my remember. personal opinion. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't remember. So whatever you say, this is. I'm gonna remember that you ranked the Godfather one point lower than that. I no. I remember where <laughs> I put the Godfather. I don't remember where the other. Hey, you, I would put this at an 89. All right. For me, which gives away. Yeah, it's lower than the no, Godfather. No, you, you already suggested that. <laughs> but not that much lower. And it's much to me. It's better than. It's better than Hurricane of Fun. And based on the format we've already established for ranking things, it's better than Twilight Imperium, even though I had more fun playing Twilight Imperium than I did reading this. Yeah, yeah. And it took longer to play Twilight Imperium, if you can believe it. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it is crazy, yeah. Yeah, what about you? Uh, in terms of I just, uh, we're, we're gearing up for uh, what, what will be a debate. It. Yeah, um... This is probably like a 97 for me. <laughs> oh, God. Are you generous with your points? Or is it that good to you? Well, you ranked The Godfather high. I gave it a 93. You gave it a 93? 93 and 94. I, I, I put it below 95, I remember. But above 90. I mean, I'm thinking about... And then again, I gave Hurricane of Fun a 77 or something. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could be talked down to like... Uh, I don't know, maybe I can be talked down. I don't know. The point I, is, it's above Godfather. That's what's important. Yeah, it's above Godfather. I, well, here's, here's where I'm at with it. Um, and I think we might have to get into some, like, almost negotiation-like things yes, toward the lie. end. Where it's like, one of us promises the other something in the future. Yeah, so yeah, that, like, yeah. we can come to an agreement. Because I don't know that, like, I think, uh... Oh, it's going to be hard because I think we, we just we both feel very strongly that one should be above the other. Um, what I believe is that uh, the ideas in this way more interesting than that in The Godfather. And I'll, you can respond to all of this. I'm just going to kind of go through like where my head's at and why I think it's like ranked higher. Yeah. I do believe that it is as influential which is one of the things you give The Godfather, but I do believe it's as influential. It might not be as directly, like, copied, but if you look at, like, the literary legacy of Slaughterhouse-Five, um, what it's done for the people, the way that people look at uh, what fiction can do, I think it's been hugely influential, and I think Kurt Vonnegut is, like, at least a big name in the history of, like, American literature as mm -hmm. Coppola is. Um, and I don't think Kurt Vonnegut had... You know, like the duds that maybe, but that you know, we're not talking about. We're not that. talking about the. Author. But um, I think quality-wise, 
I do think that The Godfather was like a super high quality movie. Um, and yet there were things about it that uh, I might have changed sequences that like didn't enchant me yeah. so much. And going into it, it wasn't maybe, um, you know, you always hear it described as the perfect movie. There were sequences and things that I found to be, you know, we talked a little bit confusing. There were slower parts. <laughs> I, I wouldn't necessarily change it, but like I don't believe that it was a flawless movie. I'm not sure that Slaughterhouse-Five is a flawless book, but I think I can much less easily point to any one flaw. It feels to me like uh, it sort of could only exist the way that it is. Um, yeah, I guess I just feel like I am less able as a person going through it to point to anything and say, no, it shouldn't be that. Mm. Um, it feels like, in my opinion, Vonnegut executed his vision perfectly. And... To top it off, I think just the fact that one of the most influential writers in American history happened to experience firsthand these atrocities and um, choose to render it in this incredibly creative way and that this novel has, like, come to us. You know, there's so many worlds where where he dies, where there never is a Kurt Vonnegut, where there is a Kurt Vonnegut, but, like... Uh, you know, he wasn't there. It just, it feels to me like uh, we almost have like firsthand reporting of something that almost nobody was there right. for. And the reporter happens to be someone who is one of the most celebrated literary figures of all time. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like, in addition to just being really good, and I truly believe that, there is like almost a, a kismet or a serendipity to like what allowed this book to be created and the fact that it exists and uh, then just like a real ballsiness in choosing to make it the way that he did and then sticking the landing. So that was a lot of words, but I basically just believe no, that I points. believe that it has like loftier ambitions. I can't name anything that it fails at. Um, I think you're going to probably talk a lot about like personal enjoyment factor. And uh, I'm not going to like try to get ahead of that, except to say that like, yeah, I, I really enjoyed reading the book. Yeah. And um, personally was like not bored by it. And, uh, You're bored by any of it. No, and but like I'm not saying that to like sound, uh, you know, smart. I think like the act of reading is obviously harder than yeah. the act of sitting down <laughs> to watch a movie. But I would say like this book did grip me. There were obviously sections where like you catch yourself zoning off and you have to go back and read. But when I think about watching The Godfather. There's, like, lines of dialogue I really missed or scenes where I was kind of like, okay, like, this has been going on for a little... Like, I zone out in The Godfather, too, and I, I, I think that that more has to do with my attention span than, like, the quality oh, wow. of the work. Because The Godfather didn't... I don't think it's, like, any fault of... Anyway, I'm done talking. I've been rambling. No, that was but, all. Um, that was I do think it's. I do think it's better, so we'll see. What was your uh, first point again? Uh, the, I think it was something about, like, the book having, like loftier ambitions more important more concerns. important is oh yeah yeah uh that i agree with actually just because like i have nothing to i don't learn anything from the godfather well but it's easy for me to like set up this like stack deck of why this is better because no, no, there's things that the godfather you know but that's just that's an interesting like i don't i don't relate to the godfather at all even stuff about family really yeah you know the one thing i can maybe grasp at is like <laughs> the whole thing of michael trying to get out of that and then being brought back in like the, you know, fam the importance of family and how it can trap him and stuff like that, but I, I don't relate to that. Um, so I'd agree that this 
on a thematic level, changed my life more than The Godfather did. I think your second point was about the importance of it in the history of yeah. literature. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know enough to talk against that. It, does, it doesn't strike me as one of the great novels. You yeah. know? It, it's a good novel, but not one that... Uh, you know, maybe that's just about subject matter, too, in that uh, I don't know if any of the sort of war stories I've read I would ever really... Um, champion is one of the best yeah uh but i think if you're but then the godfather i think the godfather is just more uh, is a more important piece of work than this more in terms of reputation and just sort of its status as the quote-unquote best movie of all time Mm -hmm. as opposed to influence if we were comparing this to something like you know citizen Kane, yeah i would be whooping your ass up and down the street about <laughs> Citizen Kane being more in front. No, I don't know. But I, there's more of an argument yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Citizen Kane. But I get clearly. Let the Godfather. Me say it back to you. You're saying that the Godfather occupies a yeah. like a spe, like a, a an elite position among movies that yeah. this does not occupy among books. Because I think that's right, accurate. But also, it had less of an influence than I can't. I don't know how much of an influence is. But I'm, right. I'm believing what you're saying. You know more about movies. Right. I know a little bit more about yeah, books. Yeah, you know, you know I'm not saying that. Books. Like I, I do think that Vonnegut's writing has a lot to do with just what fiction is today. Right. And The Godfather was. It spoofed a lot, and I'm sure it does have something. But it wasn't. It doesn't. It doesn't do a ton of stuff. Gangster movies that came after. I do think it was like influential. I don't want to take that away. And I would say maybe they're similarly influential, but I do think you have me in the sense that Godfather is. But I'm also, and I'm also viewing the, yeah, and I was sort of viewing it more as like from a stylistic standpoint. I don't know if there's much that Godfather did stylistically. Okay. That shook the world. And again, I'm not too informed on I've taken some film history classes yeah. and stuff like that. Godfather isn't really talked about even in the realm of 70s film as being films that changed the world. You know, it's just okay. sort of this great movie, sort of like in a Shawshank Redemption sort of way. Um, so that, you know, you might have, there's something there maybe. Uh, your third point about, was I think about flaws and stuff. Yeah, just that um, I can point to flaws in The Godfather. Yeah. I feel like this... I mean, I, I, I think it's kind of apples and oranges, but, like, I, I don't know. I wouldn't know what to say was, like, a flaw in the book. I don't know if I'd know either, but I think that's something interesting for me, which is just I don't know how to... I think book criticism is way less practiced by people who yeah. aren't book critics just because I don't know... I've never read a bad book. I've oh. read books that I don't like. Yeah. But every book I've read has been under the pretense that this is an amazing book. Gotcha. If you, that's interesting. If you, I, yeah. I'm just not. If I start a book and it's like right, you're not just going to pick up a. book <laughs> The only like time I read a bad book yeah. is if I'm like, oh, my friend wrote this. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which has never happened. Jacob's but, friend, if you're listening. Yeah. No. 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 That's never. I don't have any friends who's written, who've published a book. But like, or if I'm like, oh, I know this author. Oh, I like. It. Oh, well, actually, I. <laughs> okay. Maybe there are some. Oh God. Okay. There's some adults I know who have published stuff that I've. Yeah, read a bit of, and I've never finished it. Not because it was bad, but just I read stuff that I either feel like I have to because it's really good, 
or I know I'll like. And if I don't like the thing I think I'm going to like, I stop and don't finish it. So I just don't really, I, I don't have much experience picking out flaws in books. And then you talk about school. You never read bad books in school. Yeah. I never have. Again, you read books you no, don't I, like. Whereas I'll, I've seen movies that are supposed to be bad, whether I agree with them or not. I've seen movies that do have flaws in them. And I can recognize those flaws. When I recognize flaws in books, there's nothing stopping someone else from, or, you know, there's yeah. stuff I don't like about this book that I'm sure people love. Yeah. So that makes this also hard to argue. And then lastly, the thing I do agree with you about the Kismet thing about, uh, I almost called him Joel Edgerton, uh, Kurt Vonnegut. That <laughs> um, is crazy. <laughs> but we don't know about Francis Ford Coppola's history with the mob. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, right. maybe, maybe, who knows what kind of snare trap he clawed his way out of. Um, no, he doesn't. I don't think he I does. don't know. It, to me... So I think I, I'm, yeah. I'm more inclined to give that one to you cleanly. Well, I want to... Before, I like, I double down because I think, um... You probably have other things you want to talk about. Yeah. That aren't responsive. I mean, I will say, I think you're more passionate about this being above the Godfather than I am the Godfather being think above this. this. Because... But I also think that's because of this elitist privilege that books have that... Yeah. Movies don't that we're going to have to reckon with. Yeah. Where it's like... If this was a board game, you yeah. know, I'd be more convinced. But, like, yeah, I'm sure more people would agree with you. I don't know that that's true, and here's here's why. I just, I think you're right about the elitist thing, and we're going to have to be careful. Like and, right. But I do think so many more people have seen The Godfather than mm. have read this. Yeah. Which is kind of a testament to The Godfather. You know, if you want to have an argument for, like, influence in terms of, like, media's influence on us as people, The Godfather has had the chance to influence more people. Mm. There's less of a barrier to entry. Um, and I think there are probably... You know, if we were to say everyone that hasn't read Slaughterhouse Five but has seen The Godfather is a vote for The Godfather, I think The Godfather totally. like wins the vote. Totally. You know, you have sort of have like a self-selecting group of people who are choosing to read this. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I think uh, I guess I'm trying to think now just to like towards your point of <laughs> books being elitist over movies is um, about like movies I've seen that I would put on par with this. That's what I'm curious about. Is it and I sort of, like, I do have some, but they align very closely with, um, like, personal preferences yeah, that I exactly. have. exactly. And so then, that's where I'm thinking, okay, well, then maybe maybe the, the way I'm approaching it is not fair, right? You know, if I need a movie to, like... But I also think this book, part of why I'm ranking it so high, is because it's so aligned with my personal preferences of what writing should be. Yeah. Whereas like if we were reading, no, I think personal you know, like for whom the bell tolls or something like that, it's like another war story that, you know, even though it's a book, I, I'm sure I would rank it lower than the Godfather. Personal preference, I think does have to play into account, be whatever the expression is, just cause that's going to make this list more interesting than yeah. a rotten tomatoes sort of something, you know, just yeah. taking IMDB scores and putting them in order. Like I'm thinking, I don't know why I keep thinking of this movie, but like, there's a good chance I'd put something like everything, everywhere, all at once above this book, above this book, and above The Godfather, even, just because. The only reason I would say I would be hesitant is for like recency bias, right? But, but that's I think a, that's gonna have to. But that's where when you talk about like uh, like everything, everywhere, all at once. Whew. I, like, that's a conversation I would have for sure. Like, I, I wouldn't know how to rank that numerically. 
But if I had to, I mean, I guess it'd be like, to me, that communicates time. This book communicates like the time in a way that really only a book can. It does things that oh, I think so only, that, yeah, totally, totally. but like everything everywhere all at once <laughs> is a movie that, yeah, yeah, yeah. that oh, could only be a movie for me kind of redefined after like what cinema could do, how yeah. cinema could tell stories. That, so I, yeah, I don't know. There, there, but that also is maybe like an elitist thing a little bit, even though I know that's not like a super hoity-toity like film style movie. Yeah, yeah. But it is like, I think probably part of why I rank it high is because like I'm more interested in the ideas that it has to do with. Whereas like The Godfather yeah. isn't It's that. just less. So yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I'm really putting a lot on... Uh, ideas, themes. Ideas and frankly just like how interesting it is to me. And The Godfather, while being like an incredibly well-executed gangster movie, I think there's like a ceiling to that in the way that I'm looking at it. And yet The Godfather interests me more. Right. But I, I, I mean, but it's it's just going over the same arguments from last time, last episode of just like, I think there's more for me to appreciate about movies, The Godfather in particular, just whereas this feels like there's one thing to appreciate, which is just the singular style of this writer and what he's going for. With The Godfather, with movies, I just love the buffet of like performance and script and whatever and that generally yields a, 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 a more enjoyment for me. It's just like, oh, even if the script is lacking, at least Brando's whatever, blah, blah, blah. So that helps with me thinking The Godfather's better and movies in general maybe more naturally ranked higher in my head. But also the accessibility, like we talked with Twilight Imperium, where it's just the... the it's just easier for me to appreciate The Godfather than yeah. it's just because I feel like... You could put The Godfather in front of most people and they'd be able to find something really staggeringly great about it. Whereas with this, well, I think you could put it in front of a lot of people. Maybe not as many as The Godfather. I just think it's easier to tap into The Godfather's appeal than this. And um, I think you're right. That goes a long way for me. I do think if we're talking about accessibility, something this book probably has going for it, in my opinion, is that, uh, look, it's not like a, it's clearly a literary novel, but I think... It's not James Joyce. Right. It's the prose is pretty easy to follow. I think uh, most people could recognize, like, the humor in it. Most people could follow the plot events. Again, like, it is assigned in high schools, which, you know, I don't, I don't know how effective that is, but, like, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that there's books where... I can imagine, like, a really strong argument being, like, you know, just, like, the Joyce that I've read. Mm. Oh, well, like, the way that it's written might contribute to its enjoyment for some people, yeah. but for the vast majority of people, it's actually going to make this, like, type, this as a media object less effective. Right. Slaughterhouse-Five, I actually think, um, is about as accessible as a book can be. It's not very wow. long. I mean, like, I guess the plot could be more interesting, yeah. but, like, that, to me... It, that does come down to like personal preference a little bit and like what would be interesting to you to read I mean maybe like a more more of like a clear narrative sequence well maybe no I, I like the narrative I think honestly my me being surprised by that too is I, I don't think the prose is it's accessible but I don't think it's the best prose I've, I've you know mm-hmm. I think there's and I can't I also haven't read enough but like you know like in the realm of prose that's like really good but also really accessible like 
I feel like like Mark Twain or something. It's like that, you know. What See, I mean? to me, this is Mark Twain. Like, I think really? they're, they're compared very often, and Mark Twain. Oh, really? <laughs> it's like a different sensibility in the sense that Mark Twain was writing earlier. Yeah. And so he kind of has a little bit more of that, like his English sounds like a little bit more antique, if yeah. you will, to us. But I don't think. Uh, I don't know. I, I it is subject matter. Though. It was just not. It was a writing style where I was just more like, "Oh, he is taking a little from the sci-fi sensibility in that." Like, yeah. there's not a lot of, to me. Well, no, there were some poetic things just with like the repetition of certain phrases and stuff, but it felt more like this sort of like then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Yeah. way more poetic than that. But like, that yeah, but it's not like very you know? ornate descriptions. Of right. Things. Um, right. Which I might just be misremembering because... No, I don't think you are. I would describe it as economical writing in the sense that I think he'll usually give us like one thing to describe something. Which I dig. And I find it like very effective. But I think where we could agree is I don't think it's like the most beautiful writing I've ever read on the prose level. I would argue... I I would like protest a little bit about saying it's like not the best prose because I actually think it like what he's trying to do... I think it delivers, and I think his style is like a. I again, like I go back to like, it, there's no mistakes. Not, like it is but, what it is. But is it a book? Okay, all right. So here's how it happens. Here's how it works. Yeah. For me. <laughs> Talk to me. I'm not saying a book needs to have this crazy, like, really advanced, really. Yeah. This wild prose that's like so singular and whatever. Because totally. I've been known to love books with this economical prose you're talking about. And it's 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 rampant in genre, fiction, but worse. I would yeah, argue. Pro- yeah, anyway, yeah, probably uh, elitism. But okay, if the <laughs> the prose isn't the scene stealer for me, yeah. it's not the Christopher Maloney of it. And if it's not, which we're mixing all yeah, these yeah, things. Yeah. But if it's not stealing the show, if the prose isn't stealing the show, like it is with some writers, where you read it for the prose. Like you're saying, you read everything where it's like that's the yeah. thing that carries you, and that you couldn't. It could be about a banister and an old Victorian home, and it's still the prose is what's most interesting. Yeah. If that's not the case, all good. I thank God that's not the case with most books. But if it's not that unique thing of the prose being the case, something else has to steal. Something else has to be the thing. But I think we're to. fundamentally disagreed here because I I don't I think, think the you, prose is the thing. I don't think you gravitate to Vonnegut's style of writing, which I think is okay. No. But I do think. Uh, you need to acknowledge that, like, his is a voice and a, like, he as a writer yeah. is respected for being a writer. And I respect I think he's got a great no, no, voice. No. I'm just saying, like, yeah, the, for me, the prose is incredible. The, like, the idea that, like, the simple, like, the simplicity that, with which he's talking about things, it's like, uh, like, it's different than Salman Rushdie, right, who I talked about a little earlier, but, like, he's a writer who uses, like, you know, much more like flowery, flowery language. Okay. He's still very creative. It's still postmodern, right? Yeah. I like reading Rushdie. I like reading. To me, it's like different. It's almost like different genres of film, even if they're writing yeah. in the same genre, right? Like it's like a very different directorial styles. But to me, like Vonnegut is like incredibly enjoyable, and it's easy to read through. Is it the highlight of the book for you, though? Is his prose? Is his? Is his? I mean... Because it wasn't... Yeah, for me, in the sense just, that, like, I... Uh, right, would right. I be interested in reading this story if someone else yeah. had written it? N- not really. I mean, you know, okay. like, I mean, part of that is so tied to, like, his biographical connection with it. But, like, 
take the story of Billy Pilgrim and his like sort of scientific, uh, I mean, no one else would write this story, so it's like difficult to do this. But if you take like the basic story that's at play here and give it to a lesser writer, I am much less interested. I don't think they're going to handle the themes as well. I don't think like it's going to be, I I just don't think the communication is going to be as clear and I don't think I'll enjoy the sentences, which like this, like I really did enjoy pretty much every sentence. I just like found them like, to me, it's like what I, it's similar to how I felt watching the Godfather actually where like just the shots, I would see the shot and think about like the care that was put into it Yeah. as someone who aspires to, you know, like write, um, reading Vonnegut's prose is like such a breath of fresh air for me. And it it does feel, it feels masterful in the way where like, uh, yeah, what's the Picasso thing? Like it took me my entire life to learn to paint like a child. Like I feel like Mm. Vonnegut here, he's using very simple language, uh, to what for me is tremendous effect, but not necessarily everyone that doesn't have to be your experience with it. But I think the prose can be a scene stealer. I do think this is a novel, a novel novel. Like I I can't imagine it another way. Whereas your argument for Twilight Imperium, I, I, I sort of felt like it was like a little more well-defined. I think also, well, I think, um, I think there's also certain biases going on with you. <laughs> where in that, <laughs> the crazy thing is, my version of this, I'm pretty sure the PDF I read didn't have Kurt Vonnegut's name on it. Either that or I just didn't take the time to see who yeah. wrote it. So I didn't know. It was Kurfani. I was reading it, and I was just like, I'm sure I'd recognize the author's name. But I was reading yeah. it as an anonymous thing. So I had no expectations. Go- to me, it is, even after you've given me the history, and even after yeah. I've done my own research, it's still severed from the author as just something a text I read yeah. for just the text itself. Did you send the no- illustrations? I'm curious. No. What? Illustrations? Show me an illustration. Oh, my God. They're like kind of weird, but like sometimes they were kind of important. There were only a few of them. So, is the original illustrator or these new illustrators? I was curious about it. What felt it felt like they had to be sort of original, both because I know he kind of doodles, and then also because um, there's not another name on this. There was one of them where it said something that wasn't in the book, um, which I'll see if I can find. It was like, it's the tombstone. You can see the tombstone. Um. It talks about how, like, Billy Pilgrim at one point has this thought about what could be on his tombstone. Um, it says, she talks about the war being awful, and he says, Sometimes a crazy thought now occurred to Billy. The truth of it startled him. It would make a good epitaph for Billy Pilgrim and for me, too. And then you, like, flip the page. <laughs> Well, that's a huge... And it says, everything was beautiful and nothing hurt on this tombstone. I was just curious if it was no, anything. No, it didn't have that. Um, didn't have there's only a few of them. This is the only one where it, like, you probably missed something that was, like, not in the text. Yeah. doesn't matter. But, uh, um, so you're saying I, I saying, approached it I in a biased way. Nothing I, wrong, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. It's going to happen to me a lot as we go on. Do you not think it happened with the Godfather? Godfather? Well, I just... <laughs> this is, is going to be controversial... But The Godfather is a better movie to me than Francis Ford Coppola's. Uh, yeah, the, the Godfather has but, more cachet than the name Francis Ford right, Coppola. Right, but don't you feel like... like I, I don't know. I, I remember you talked about your experience watching it last time. Don't you feel... Or maybe you don't, because, again, I remember you were young and you would see it like right. parts on TV. I would imagine that it'd be hard with the reputation that The Godfather has to, at any age, not go in. 
not going in knowing that this is expect is one of the best movies. No, of all that's time. that was there, but just nothing about the name. But right. That was also there for me with Slaughterhouse Five, where I knew this was an amazing book. Maybe not as amazing as Godfather, right. but I was expecting greatness out of Slaughterhouse Five, like I was the Godfather. But I'm talking specifically about like the authorial, yeah, or autorial <laughs> um, reputation that precedes certain things. Honestly, with yep. Hurricane of Fun, not with Amy Rice, sadly, but more with some of the actors involved in that. That yep. elevates it, you know what I mean? And for instance, if we looked at like some Martin Scorsese movie that I haven't seen, his name's definitely going to elevate, you know. Yeah. As I'm sure, honestly, it probably would have if I knew it was by Kurt Vonnegut. Again, not because I knew anything about Kurt Vonnegut, but I know he's one of those authors I'm supposed to like. Yeah. So I'm sure I would have tricked myself into like, like you know, we tell one of the books that's affected me the most is we were talking about The Great Gatsby, yep. which I don't try not to talk about too much because it's very cliche. But you know what influenced that was the fact that The Great Gatsby has talked about like The Godfather has talked about and the fact that F. Scott Fitzgerald has talked about like Martin Scorsese has talked about. I'm sure I've, I tricked myself into liking that book as much as I did. I think it's an amazing book. I don't no, think I you do too. Yourself. I do too, but I'm yeah. sure, no, there's definitely stuff at play going on there as opposed to like when I read To Kill a Mockingbird in seventh grade and just like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. You know what I mean? Then was like, oh, actually really good. And my dad was like, well, you know, it's one of the best. Yeah. Well. But I'm a little more convinced of the naturalism of that approach because that was more like my approach to this book. Yeah, and interesting. Except, again, I knew that this book was supposed to be amazing. Yeah, I, I guess I don't know what it's, to say. Yeah, there's nothing really. to say. No, I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I don't know that I entered this book with more of a... Uh, with like being more biased towards liking it than like the godfather for me yeah for you no for me for sure okay all right i'm just saying then like i, I don't think oh, we're ever gonna enter in like dry no this like is a i i, I you know like i said i was predisposed to like this i told the listeners i want to like kurt vonnegut right mm-hmm. like he's someone that like the writers i love love and so right, like clearly right. he you know but um yeah, I mean, I guess just, like, the weight of any great work of art is that people are going to know that it's great at a certain point before they, get, you know, you go sure. into it. I do imagine, um, I mean, I don't know, your experience of reading it is interesting. I feel like, uh, you know, if this was, like, an assigned book in school, for instance, um, especially high school, where, again, it is, like, taught sometimes, I would imagine that, like, some of the differences and, like, what is so subversive about it would, like, pop more that would be a cool way to read it is like a high schooler oh, not yeah, knowing what Kurt Vonnegut is loved it more in high school, um, I, think. I think we're we we're coming come to a bit of an impasse yeah um and what I will propose because I, I think um I mean you already sort of like rolled over on like maybe giving this one to me because yeah, you feel yeah. like I'm more passionate but I don't really want like our list to ever reflect just like you know, I mean, I think that I guess if I'm more passionate in this moment that this should go higher. Um, I just don't have any arguments. I know I don't have an argument that's going to convince you that the Godfather, you should put the Godfather above. Whereas you've made enough arguments to me that haven't convinced me in my own head, but have convinced me on a, when I consider the future in a very Trophimadorian way. I consider the future of what else we're going to be ranking where I know stuff is going to go above The Godfather. And there's a good chance a lot of it is the stuff with which I have a relationship that you have with this. Yeah. No, it does. Um, I want to highlight, I think, 
one of the most potent things that you've said to me in this conversation is like was it the good book thing I was proud of that one what good book thing yeah no clearly not that I've never no, read I a think bad it, book oh well that was just interesting have but, you read a bad book no once? that's why it was interesting right, like I probably have I've read books that I kind thought of thought like parts of them were shitty but like you're always given books and being like look this is great where we consume so many movies where you kind of know it's bad anyway um, what have I said <laughs> no you're just talking about like I do have biases toward books, oh, right? Like, it's, like, my favorite form of media. And so, like, the fact that I'm going to be predisposed to rank books higher, like, I think retroactively, sure, I called this a 97, but if I'm being honest with myself, like, if The Godfather's a 90 in my objective ranking, can Slaughterhouse Five? like, I, it's kind of scary to rank anything that high so early. <laughs> like, I feel like it's probably, like, you know, more of a 95 or something. And I do feel like... um it, it goes higher for me and I'm not arguing that it should be lower. Um, but I want to be conscious of the fact that at least if we decide to rank this higher in this instance, my bias towards books will have outweighed what I believe to be a similar bias that you have towards like movies and like certain forms of media yeah, I think, but weirdly, I think you have more of a bias towards books than I have towards, because like, yeah. I even, like, don't, like, <laughs> love movies and TV and just, yeah. you know what I mean? I think it's more a bias I, am, I have yeah. against books. <laughs> but I, I also think Which, I am biased, like, you know, I just, uh, I don't know, I, I have such, like, a great respect for good writing that I think yeah. I will let that cloud my judgment in the future. Um and oh, yeah. I don't cloud. believe that really I'm, I'm letting it cloud it now because I, I actually believe that, uh, among other things, Slaughterhouse-Five is just more important. Uh, like, I, I do believe that the ideas angle and, um, I, I don't know, I believe the arguments I presented for this being no, better, but what I want to do is, uh, offer you, I'm, I'm trying to think of what to call it here, um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I guess a veto. We can yeah. come up with a better thing. But this is a, it's a veto because I'm putting this in the number one spot. And I imagine that uh, for a while, it's going to be hard to get me to argue anything else over it, right? I mean, it would have to be something else because I like this quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. So what I am giving you is the power to completely negate my arguments in one future episode. Yeah. Not to avoid voicing them, but like if you truly believe that something should be ranked somewhere. Yeah. You, without feeling bad, because I'm getting this win here, I mean, and I tr I'm i trusting you and giving it to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I believe that I can trust you more than my future self in some of these ways. Can just place something anywhere you like in the list. And so yeah, okay. we'll talk about it, but like if we are similarly disagreed about something yeah. like this in the future, and if you felt like, I mean, I'm not going to be giving a lot of these out. Yeah. But I think um, it would be very appropriate for you to say in, a, like, some number of episodes down the line, I think that Slaughterhouse-Five should be number one, yeah. and you think that we've watched a movie that is appropriately, like, well, yeah, comparable. Yeah, yeah. I think that you should use that veto no, I, to... I'll, uh, I'll accept it. I think I'm going to more use... It's more likely I'll use this veto as to... To put something lower than you think it is in the future, because I think what we've come across right now. <laughs> I'm playing with the thermometer, listeners. <laughs> what we've come across right now is a situation where you've just, you were the one, you've experienced, <laughs> you've experienced, we've gotten to something that you're passionate about before. 
I have. Yeah. You know, I think when I think about stuff that'll probably rival your passion yeah. for this. Although I feel like there are things, your passion for literature, while I always knew about it, I don't know if I knew it was as powerful as I found today and you saying it's your favorite medium ever. But uh, all this to say, I think there's stuff down the line because yeah. the closest thing we have here is The Godfather. But I right. think there will be things down the line no, as like, opposed to mediums. Even just Arrival particular. would be a different conversation. I know that's not your favorite movie or anything, but like if it was like, I guess it'd be ridiculous for me to say like that The Arrival is better than The Godfather maybe, yeah. but I'm just way more predisposed to like it. So sure. like if you... You know, if presented with something that, like, you're very passionate about and is, like, slightly more in my wheelhouse than The Godfather is, I think I would be, like, flexible. Right, but I also just think there would be a more interesting argument to be had there. Because you're right now defending The Godfather. I'm defending something that I really like, but I'm not... I really don't know how to argue. It's hard hard for me to argue. Whereas if this was... If I was, for some reason, arguing, like, like, Seinfeld... Ooh. versus this. Yeah. Or like, you know, getting even more like some Batman story, comic or something, or Batman, you know. Yeah. I think that would just be a more interesting debate both for us and the listeners. So I look forward to that being an argument that I don't need a veto for. So I think I'm going to try to use this veto, veto for something. To put one of the books <laughs> to I put like put something down. Yeah, if you're more passionate. <laughs> I just don't I also, know I, how to argue. I, I want to say... I, I feel bad, yeah. Um... Just because I think it might make you feel better if this is the ranking we decide on. I do believe our list, and I don't think this is the worst way to think about it, I believe our list is much cooler in a world where Slaughterhouse-Five is above The Godfather. Yeah, it's got more cooler. Or in the immediate future where Slaughterhouse-Five is uh, number one. Yeah. Mostly because... Whatever you want to say about The Godfather, I, I think that they, you know, has a lot of clout as well. But it's a little less basic. It's yeah, a little bit more, you know, it's not It's not the literary equivalent of, like, um, you know, it's not To Kill a Mockingbird yeah. in the sense, like, it is a little bit more rock and roll than that. It, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of humorous. Like, it just feels like something totally. that, like, to have it atop the list. Uh, it's a little more nuanced. It makes me more interested in what our no. opinions are if I'm, a, if I'm a listener, maybe. So I just think it kind of makes the list cooler. I agree. I agree with that. And, um... Yeah, I really didn't have a problem. I don't have a problem with putting it above the Godfather. It doesn't worry me. What worries me is you being like, I don't know if anything's going to top this for a while. Well, I I, I want you to know that's mostly coming from me thinking about what we've discussed doing in the future, which (laughs) none of that is something that you've been like, oh, this is, you know what I mean? It's nothing. I think we have some kind of meme episodes coming up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. But, you know, I mean, give me a... These are conversations we can have off air, but like you know, throw me throw me some bones that uh, you think could unseat it, and um, if you're passionate, you can veto it, and if you yeah. just argue well, like you know, I mean, like I'm not. This isn't my favorite book, no, so yeah, it's not yeah, like yeah, I yeah. need it to stay on top. Yeah, yeah, I'm satisfied. Yeah, me too. Well, <laughs> listeners, geez, this is a it. Do they do they get longer every single time? Let's see how long. This is. Oh God, this is almost three Holy hours. Shit. This might need to be a two-parter. Okay, well, yeah, we'll we'll probably upload this in two parts, listeners. Um, yeah, which is insane, but we hope. But I do think it. this is our best episode. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, yeah, they've all been great, but this one's fantastic. I think fantastic. the last episode was really good, but people yeah. didn't like it. 
So I think the people that didn't like that will like this. Yeah, they'll like just getting back to our roots, Cole and Jacob. Cole and Jacob talking. I think we had a little more of a... And it is fun to get... Um, I wish we could have... I almost wish it was a worse book so that like there was more argument um, Yeah. in the trenches. Like I think it will be fun in the future to like... Oh, okay, it narrowly beat Twilight Imperium or like it beats, you know, like once we have more things, like more right. things to compare against, I think is really fun. Yeah, it'll be fun to critique stuff again, too. Yeah. We really haven't done too much of that since Hurricane of Fun. Yeah. And, and Rice, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> Rice, if you're we, listening. We, we like it. We like it. It's really not you we were critiquing. No. It, we you enjoyed just happened it. to have it's directed still, the worst piece of media. Yeah, that's still, <laughs> it's still the one. I maybe enjoyed experiencing the most. No, that can't be true. No, no, absolutely not. It, I just enjoyed experiencing. It's true. More I enjoyed. I enjoyed experiencing more than this book. Yeah, yeah, but okay. It was like Let's, forty minutes of my life. Yeah, I think this timing thing is also something we're gonna have to work out. Yeah, yeah. Because like, but you know, I, I guess you're being fair in the sense that like, if you talk about something like Seinfeld, all the seasons, you probably enjoyed it. You know, you enjoyed it enough to keep watching. Maybe you wouldn't have enjoyed the book enough to keep reading. I wouldn't have enjoyed Seinfeld as much as I did if I binged it. Yeah. You know what I mean? If I could have, if, if we read a book and we had time to read, yeah. read it, I would have enjoyed it. More. Uh, I would have enjoyed it more than if I binged read yeah. One Piece or something. Um, Which well, is listeners, for what we're doing next. I, uh, yeah, yeah, anyway. what, yeah, we're not talking about it. We need to go. Um, <laughs> listeners, I've been Cole. I've uh, been Jacob. Thank you for listening to our media set, says. <laughs> I don't know why I mix it up because I know it's he said what. He said what is so easy. Media said what. I mean, uh, you know what screwed us over is when. Oh, this is a whole conversation for another day. Never mind. <laughs> but there was a joke we had once that screwed me over in terms of whether it says what or said what. Anyway, yeah, take us home. Take us out. Uh, we need to have some tradition. We'll develop something. Yeah, something yeah, yeah. Something pithy to say. But for this one, I, I think uh, so it goes. So it goes. There it goes. <laughs>